Hello and welcome to the next episode of the podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. Big shout outs to our sponsors, 420 Australia, your number one store for lifestyle and apparel, Organic Gardening Solutions, the one pit stop for all your organic needs, and finally, Seeds Here Now. You know them, you love them, guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. On this episode, we're joined by one of the biggest names for me. I've been gunning this one down forever, you know. DJ Short. Prepare for three hours of some serious knowledge. Let's get into it. Alrighty, so big thank you and welcome to a man who needs little introduction, the blue strain himself, DJ Short. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hello. So, first question we've been starting the show off with recently. What have you been smoking on recently? Oh, goodness. Um, I've had some R&D things. Um, Their labels to me are FX1, FX3, FX4, and there's a a new variety uh, tentatively named Happy Pussy. Well, that's actually its name, (laughs) The Mother. Um, and it's the offspring of that, which I think I'll, I'll be calling New Dawn. I, I like it a lot. Uh, the reason I'm calling it, it's called Happy Pussy, the mother, is because it makes you purr. It's, it's definitely a, a feline reference. And I know that there are other connotations to the term, and it's a bit controversial, and I just decided to go forward with it anyhow. The release, the first release, will have a different name, but in the lineage will be, you know, the mother is happy pussy and the father is the F4 blueberry uh, dad. Um, so she'll, she'll get introduced that way. But, but that's her story. Uh, the, the label I have in mind is the Cheshire cat grinning, happy pussy on top. Um, it makes you purr underneath. And then what were you thinking? Because it, does, it gets a lot of reaction. So why not? You know, P.T. Barnum knew about advertising. <laughs> yeah, the marketing twist. I think what's most interesting about all that is I think uh, your son, JD, maybe posted a photo of that FX1 not just even an hour or two ago. I was looking at it. That's an interesting one because we've got a lot of people who are really interested in, um, you know, your new coming lines. What what made you use that um, terminology, like the FX1? What does that stand for exactly? Is it just kind of arbitrary or does it mean something? Yeah, it was uh, from a past labeling, much of which was experimental and works in progress. Um, F is us- was usually floral. X um, referred to um, high resin content, uh, and, and it just happened to be a part of its label. There, there was more to it than that, but for simplicity's sake, that's what these particular plants got labeled. Uh, for example, the Happy Pussies label was 1-7. Um, oh, there's two more numbers on that, but 1-7 is the main envelope I keep going to. So, so that, was, that was their initial uh, labeling and name as they... Um, produce as I'm able to sample the the various things. Then they develop a, a name. Yeah. Um, and the like, for example, the FX1. Um, I'm I'm wanting to call Newberry. I, I like this strain a lot too. It's very anti-anxiety. The mother on that one is Blue Heaven, 
or a new uh, version, same parent stock that the original Blue Heaven came from. Uh, just found another one. Uh, and it's wonderful anti-anxiety. It's very pleasant, comfortable, functional um, smoke. Very potent, but uh, clear-headed. Uh, certain med people that have very serious debilitations really liking this strain because it makes them feel more comfortable in their bodies. And so that that's you know kind of what I was shooting for and success um, so far so good. That's exciting to hear because I think Blue Heaven and kind of the offspring of that have been some of the most sought after things from the research I've done. But before we get into that, I'd love for you to take me back. What was your first experience with cannabis? Oh, God. Yeah, we're going way back. Uh, very early 70s, um, 1971, basically. And, and uh, the first few times I smoked, nothing happened. That was kind of the case for uh, most people uh, back in the day. Uh, it took me six six tries before I finally uh had my experience and that was with a variety i remember it well it was called mexican flower top it was basic commercial sativa running around at the time decent quality um more more buds i mean one of the the myths about the great sativa of yore you know well not myths but truth in in advertising and and just to get the whole story most of it was bunk right i mean the huge loads of it that came in in 100 ton loads we called it dirt weed uh then the smaller loads that came from smaller importers people like the brotherhood of eternal love and and other or similar organizations uh focused by far more on quality smaller quantities maybe 10 tons at the most whereas the larger sativa loads back in the day were 100 tons uh so the attention to detail and quality wasn't always up to par on 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 most of that variety so once you had your connections established um it it was r- relatively simple at certain times to find uh, much better uh, quality over others. So that Mexican flower top, it was just very, very interesting, very visual, um, quite dissociative, time distorting, colorful, um, and and most enjoyable. Uh, again, I was uh, all of uh, 14 years old um, at the time, but had many uh, revelations epiphany on on that particular day <laughs> yeah, wow i think that's kind of the uh, the experience all of us are hoping for so yep, yep. in regards to the bowl stock or the brotherhood of eternal love it's interesting you mention that because it seems as though as we've done more and more shows they keep coming up as a constant reference and a lot of people say that if they could pick any stock from throughout history, if they could get their hands on some bowl, <clears throat> excuse me, if they get some hands on some bowl stock, that's kind of what they'd be thinking. Did you ever, you know, I think you kind of alluded that that Mexican stuff came possibly through those links. Did you ever find any seeds or was it not like that? Because I think a lot of people think that the weed would have had seeds in it. Sure, sure. Uh, and way back, um, it's kind of hard to, to decipher that far back once uh, 72 73 and i was really in uh you know purchasing herb on a regular basis uh establishing my own networks 
um, yeah, I mean, you go with what you appreciate the most and, and uh, working with uh, some of these groups back in the day, that, that was just the overall um, uh, feeling. And, and if your appreciation was sensed, that kind of put your place in, in, in the network um, of things. One of the things I used to do uh, way back when was whenever I would get a hold of something that was, in my opinion, quite superior, I would practice extreme discipline and always hold on to some. And for whatever occasion in the future, be it a party, at, at a festival or something, and meet someone else who has something of equal interest it it was very beneficial to then go oh well hey i've got some of this and that 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 connection right there i think did more to further my place in that um food chain um than than probably anything else because then you have a rapport and then when that person and if they're particularly if they're a dealer runs into something of of quality they want to impress you know you because you impress them so you're 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 on the list then so to speak and and it worked out well and i should mention too you know there's a lot of talk the brotherhood of eternal love yes they were a group that was more out there you know they were outspoken as to who they were but there were many such organizations and they were many were loosely affiliated to one another that that whole distribution chain just like any is 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 a fascinating subject in and of itself yeah wow so i think the thing which grabs my curiosity the most out of all of what you said is i think a lot of people off the top of their head would say that you know in their minds you you climbed that hierarchy that food chain pretty quickly because a lot of people can think back to hearing you as a kind of like a leader figure in the very early days. And so I guess what I'm interested in is, in your opinion, how long did it take before you felt like you were starting to get somewhere in the community and you could start to you know, uh, kind of pull some strings and have a bit of influence? Yeah, given the political climate here in the States, you know, I mean, I, I, I love to brag. I survived Nixon, Reagan, Bush one, Bush two. We should start an organization. We have a veteran, a veteran of uh, foreign wars, VFW. I've always said, let's start a veteran of domestic wars um, that that many of us endured as well. Um, it was laying low all the way up until um, the early nineties. I went to Amsterdam for my first time in in ninety three in an attempt to uh, connect there. Kind of haphazardly did. Uh, didn't get a ball rolling there until the mid mid nineties, late nineties. Really, things started to take off for me. Um, I can say in retrospect that I knew these days were coming. Back in the early eighties, I began my breeding work in earnest uh, about nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine. After moving to Eugene, Oregon, from the Detroit, Michigan area. Um, and it just blossomed from there. Um, so, you know, as far as, as breed work, that would have been 78, 79, as far as really introducing into the community, not really until the late nineties, I did an article for high times. I think the first reference to the name DJ short, I think it was 98, 1998, that article came out. Wow. But 
I mean, I certainly think I've found some references before that just from people, for example, in the Oregon area who you'd given clones to because... Oh. <laughs> yeah, so that that's an interesting one I wanted to talk about because, you know, I mean, we're probably going to end up having to go back here, but something I really always admired about you specifically was that there seemed to be, at least from what I could gather, you were you were willing to give out, um, you know, some cuts to people. And the more I trace it back, the more I think that really helped progress the scene in a lot of ways. Did you did you give out your early blueberry cuts knowing that it would be so beneficial and have the effects it has, or was it more of just like you're just helping people out? <laughs> yeah, again, uh, it's the it's the family mentality, the brotherhood, the Grateful Dead, really. I mean, uh, the, 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 the mantra is share the love and spread the love. And I had no problem ever doing that because by the time I had something in clone form, I already had seed stock that was, you know, the next level to work on. And to me, it just, it was, it was a, a benefit to get those things out there. Um, and then I didn't have to worry about that anymore. Um, and I did, I sold uh, a lot of clones, gave away clones, traded and sold many from, um, 1978 until 1987. I know, um, a lot of those went down to Northern California too. That early version of blueberry, incidentally, um, it was an auto flower, uh, but it, it majorly produced and, uh, people, people really liked it. Its name wasn't blueberry back in the 80s its name back in the 80s the primary name was the kind and 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 the way that worked is you know all of us in the industry were, were working on various things and those various things of course you know to pay the bills you have to sell a lot of these things some being better than others you learn from your clientele when they come back and they go, no, 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 man, what you had last week, the kind, man, the kind. Um, and, and it was relative, you know, easy to dial in for, from that point, getting, getting feedback from people. I, I did a lot of interesting things. Um, uh, there was a band in, in Eugene I used to go see on a regular basis called The Outtakes. Uh, the lead guy in it, his name is uh, Steve Eibach. He's still playing today in Eugene, and and uh, don't miss this. Every Tuesday at Mulligan's Pub, if you are in Eugene, Oregon, um, go see Steve Eibach. It's free. He's a one-man psychedelic jam band. At any rate, I would go to these shows in the 80s, and I'd have these various types of pot with me, or bring one at a time, but try different ones. And and during the break, during the, the you know, in between sets, take the band out and get them stoned and then come back and see. And the second set, you know, it was always better. <laughs> I, I, I rarely, you know, experimented with things. I only did that type of experimentation with things that I was pretty certain would, you know, fit the bill. And they did. And, and Steve remembers this. I've known him for almost 40 years now. And, and uh, he's in his mid-60s. Like I said, if you're in Eugene, Mulligan's Pub, Tuesdays, Steve Ibach, you won't regret it. He's on YouTube too, I-B-A-C-H. And, and uh, a treasure, an absolute musical treasure. So, yeah, it was, it was those kinds of things, seeing how you can influence a party show up at a party, break something out, the party's kind of dead when you get there, and, and an hour or two later, it's like, whoa, that 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 did something. Um, but always, it, it's the, you know, 
people ask me how how do I judge herb or or I should say um, yeah how do I judge herb primarily by the effect of the finished product. So many people I see one of the big mistakes that I, I witness uh, contemporary breeders today and, and growers is they fall in love with the plant and the structure of it and the smell of it and you've got to wait and see how that thing performs, how it smokes, how it feels in my body. And over a period of time, um, so yeah, it, it takes a bit of time to determine the burnout factor and, and those types of things. But um, that to me is the how, how I, the primary means I judge herb is by smoking the finished product and, and paying attention and taking notes. Yeah, amen. The amount of people who I've spoken to who say that that's their opinion and they got it straight from you, it's like, it's kind of a bit mind-blowing. But let's just take a step back. So, you mentioned you started growing. What I would love to know is, when did you decide to start breeding and how did you acquire the initial stock to do so? From the get-go, I mean, I wanted to grow and breed from the time I was a teenager uh, I, and there were seeds and everything back then. Those, those major, those big boatloads of the Colombian bunkweed and, and various Mexican bunkweeds that were in such mass quantity for some reason, I don't know if it was pressure, heat, steam, whatever they did to it, they wouldn't sprout. Um, either that, we were completely inept, couldn't figure it out. Um, things like where we would smoke out by the patio, you would notice one spring that a plant came up between the cracks in the patio blocks and you'd get a little spoon and, and dig it up and put it in a cup and stick it somewhere and, and, uh, try and, and to get it going. Um, it was then, uh, from there, a desk lamp. One of those, just just a, a lamp on the desk. Uh, put the little plant in the cup. I finally, in in it was in 1977. I have photos of these plants actually uh, that were finally getting to sprout as well. I had a story in my book about not being able to sprout. It was finally some Hawaiian and this little uh, toy that came with in a cereal box that was a seed sprouter, a little plastic dome with a uh, uh, piece of sponge in the bottom of it and i wet that thing and put a whole bud in there and a whole bunch of (laughs) of, uh, roots shot out and it's oh here we go planted a bunch of those put them under the desk lamp um i finally got a four foot set of fluorescent lights hung them at the foot of my bed um and mind you, in this day, there, there there wasn't any place you could go and buy pots and dirt. Um, it, it just wasn't there, you know. It, it didn't exist back in the day. And I had to modify waste baskets. I got metal waste baskets, used an old pop can opener along the bottom to do drainage, got gravel out of my driveway for the drainage in the bottom and dirt from the backyard. Um, That's how that went. Put these plants under these lights, no timing on it, had no idea what flowering cycle was. They grew six feet tall, um, lanky sativa. um, And it wasn't until that I moved to Oregon and it was in that interim that I had learned, you know, read Mel Frank's books and Ed Rosenthal and a few others of, of the time 
and had it figured out, oh, dark cycle, light cycle, okay. Um, had a, a little duplex I lived at in Eugene, set up a bathroom and a bedroom, fluorescent lights again. This was before metal highlights and, and just went, went nutty. Um, by then there were, there were places in Eugene to get soil, but it was bulk. It was like from Rexius. So I'd have to line the trunk of my old Chevy with plastic and go down to the Rexius place and they would load it in with a front loader in the back of my car. Shortly thereafter though, I mean, it, it started picking up. It's 78, the highlights, metal highlights, uh, high, high HID lighting showed up. Uh, 79, they were really commercially available. And then there was soils and fertilizers and pots and those various things that agribusiness already had, which then got distributed to uh, our community and things started taking off. Um, it was very uh, successful for a lot of people um, throughout the 80s due to, you know, the political climate was so oppressive uh, the risk was very great uh, if you got caught, um, but it was relatively simple to um, circumvent those uh, problems and, and be successful. Luck had something to do with it, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, so it was about 80, 81, things really went boom. You know, High Times was advertising the various grow systems and things, and the Indica genes yeah. had shown up. Okay. And so one of the questions that was sent in a few times by the guests was they were wondering if you could give us a little information on how you initially came by the Oregon Purple Tie. Yeah, well, I was growing out the sativa, doing selections from them. I uh, had my hands in a number of projects. I was helping various people set up their uh, grows, doing some outdoor things uh, in the woods, uh, but had a nice selection to uh, witness. Made my, my selections, uh, one of which was the Highland Tie, which was the Juicy Fruit. The other two were the chocolate tie and the Oaxacan, uh, both of which I liked uh, a, a lot, even what I was growing in Oregon. You know, I'm not talking even about the, the land race stock that, that uh, it came from, but, but the grown out stock in Oregon. Um, the both, well, no, the, the Oaxacan was, was, well-behaved. It was a very symmetric plant. Uh, she didn't misbehave too terribly in terms of hermaphroditism. And the chocolate tie, on the other, was the, the exact opposite. It was just uh, no different meristem every week. She grew all over the place. Um, terribly hermaphroditic. Um, in clusters, though, that were, were somewhat easy to deal with. And it just so happened that I had a whole bunch of Oaxacan pollen, uh, had done an indoor harvest on that while the outdoor was flowering, and applied that to this chocolate tie plant, which then became the um, Oregon purple tie. Uh, that was 1979 that that was done. Uh, it was 1980 that the Oregon purple tie was first grown out. Um, clone, a lot of clones of that went out as well. Um, 
and uh, it was uh, working with the Indica at that time too is, is when that showed up. But yeah, that's the uh, purple tie. When I grew her out, um, most of the phenotype from her were uh, workable, were, were um, you know, they passed the muster. And so I uh, got a good uh, clone stock of her going. I have some, a picture of her as well, but only in vegetative state outdoors. Again, there's not many photos. There wasn't digital photography back in that day. Most of my photos are from Polaroids that a friend of mine would have a Polaroid and I'd have enough money to buy a pack of film and, and have them come over and uh, still have that evidence. So. Yeah, those Polaroids are seriously some of the most cool little uh, strain history stuff we can get. So, something I did want to ask, you kind of answer is, I've seen a few people, very limited, I think Snow High is the one who comes to mind, and he, he breeds with the Oregon Purple Tie. So, yeah, I wanted to ask, is it still out there? You kind of answered that. You know, good question. The The, the name got its, its, its place, has its hype. It remains to be seen. I can say this, I can attest to this, it was a while ago now, um, my goodness, almost 10 years, I was at Hempfest in Seattle, and someone had showed up, I was hanging out at the Cannabis Culture booth, and someone had stopped by, um, he said, oh, I'm from Oregon, and I have uh, what I think is your original blueberry, that thing that we called the kind back in the day. And he had dropped some names in some places and, you know, made me go, huh. And then he gave a description and I go, yeah, you know, that really sounds, you know, like, like it. He says, oh, well, he says, I have some. I didn't bring it with me today. Um, he says, but I get, you know, Hempfest was two days. He came the next day and he had some. And sure enough, that was it. Hmm. Um, I, I got his contact info. He was in Portland. He was in Portland, Oregon. Uh, never reconnected with him. I think we shared emails a few times, but it's just it, when it's it's passing away. I know this is the case, though. I know that there are people out there that that still have these things, um, especially people that kept it quiet, you know, and and were really low key. And I think the same can be said for the land races, for places like Oaxaca and Thailand and and Burma and India, Nepal. Um, that there are still, I, I like to think in my mind of a grandmother, you know, and she's got her garden. She's growing not just vegetables, but she's got her herb in there. And her goal growing her herb is not really for money. She might trade some of it for something or, uh, you know, sell a little bit of it. But her, her primary goal is to grow what her grandmother grew. And the way that went since antiquity is, you know, you spread your seed in the garden and the plants come up and then come fall, you harvest and out of one, you know, one of those plants is your favorite. And that plant that was the favorite, that's the seeds you use for next year and on and on and on. And after thousands of years, I mean, you know, people in these uh, you know, antiquity areas, these um, land race areas um, have thousands of years on us in, in, in terms of experience with this plant. I think we, we still have a lot to learn from them as well and and getting they're still there I, I, not the Ariane method of, of strain hunters but I, Ariane's alright I don't I, he's an upfront guy and I, I'm okay with what he does but you're not going to get to the quality you're going to get to the quantity 
through the strain hunters method. If you want the quality, you've got to learn the language, learn the culture, devote some time of your life, go to that area, gain the trust of those people. Like the Brotherhood said, spread the love, which in the case of the people there is money or the things that they need in that area. Um, and and establish your your contacts. I know they're still there. I know they're still there. Yeah, wow, that's kind of inspiring. So just to loop back onto something you mentioned a while ago, something I really enjoy about your mindset is a lot of breeders these days will look at a project, especially after they've grown out the testers, and they'll say it's either good or bad. But just when you referenced the purple tie, you said it's workable. And it made me realize you see things in more of like shades of gray than black and white. Do you feel like that's something that's missing where people are just going to go it's good or it's bad? Or should people look to work things a bit more in the way you have? Yeah, um, definitely. You know, we could use some improvement in, in, in that capacity. Um, <clears throat> again, bearing in mind to go... Uh, and it's hard to do because we fall in love with the plants, right? You got a plant, you got a garden going, you got 20 different varieties in there, and some are just they they stand out. Um, that's as a plant. Um, and whatever relationship you have as a grower with that plant, that's great. How that carries over into the commercial world and how other people are going to appreciate that plant, I don't think can be fully ascertained until we at least subjectively test that herb. Now, I do have um, five objective criterion that I'll make notes of, and I can go over them real quickly. It's onset, how long does it take to uh, fully feel the effect of the product? Is it a quick onset or a long onset? Does it take an hour? Does it take five minutes? Um, duration, how long does the effect last? Um, ceiling. If I continue to smoke more and more, does my experience expand more or do I just get stuck in this one, you know, a heavy hitting indica, you just sink more into the couch. Um, the fourth one, and this is an important one, and this takes time. I call it tolerance threshold or burnout. You know, after a week of smoking this continually, is this something I want to return to? Um, and does it still have the same effect? And then uh, finally, this is another time issue, is shelf life. When it sits in a jar for a year, for two years, or for three years, does it improve in quality? So with those five objective um, analyses, the sixth one being, and this is just an overall, would be potency, uh, just, just the general potency of, uh, but for me, it's more desirability. I think, you know, a lot of people are, if it messes you up a whole bunch, they feel that's a success. Whereas for me, I'm more into a clarity, clear, and, and that's harder to dial in. Messing yourself up on something super potent, that's easy. So a kind of a, a common reference we've had in the show is how some of the strains from years gone by seem to lack kind of what you referred to as like a ceiling whereby, you know, you can smoke more and the experience gets greater. You kind of go to a new place. Commonly, it's said that a lot of our modern hybrids don't have this. They do have a ceiling and you're kind of very limited in the feeling. Where do you think this comes from? Because I've been thinking about it a lot and it's like, do you think that it's just something about being a land race that it, or like, you know, being more closer to that end of the spectrum, it allows you to have a more interesting experience or because it's just, yeah, I'm trying to figure out where does this ceiling come from? 
Yeah, definitely related to uh, land race uh, uh, phenomenon. I mean, I release my, my seed stock is pretty much F5s. Uh, that's five generations from the land race, which are the P1s. Then we have our F1s, F2s, so on. And I did that for a reason. And um, I wanted to establish enough um, of the characteristics to, you know, market it as whatever it's called, blueberry flow, whatever. Um, but also to leave enough of that land race variance in there so that people have a few generations left to play with it. I did an article in O'Shaughnessy's not long ago, uh, and it was calling for a new classification of cannabis, where we have indica and sativa and ruderalis. And if we're going to use those criterion, I said, why not let's use um, cannabis indoor um, and the indoor environment, which is primarily high-intensity discharge lights, relatively limited soil space, although that's you know growing more. Um, and but the the plants tend to acclimate to that environment. They acclimate to whatever environment they are in. Um, so um, that indoor environment, I think, you know, we we can't replicate the the, the tropical environment. There are too many variables, or are just are too many uh, variables just uh, going on in that environment. Um, that we're we're limiting in that indoor environment. And in my opinion, it's about the eighth generation out, um, tenth for sure. By the tenth generation, you are seeing this very likeness between strains. I noticed this for the first time when I was in Europe uh, back in the 90s. Back in Europe in the 90s, um, pretty much all they had were sodium lights, high-intensity uh, sodium lights. They didn't have many metal highlights, so it was more the orange spectrum. And it was there that I noted because I use mainly uh, highlights. I really like that blue spectrum a lot more, and it allowed me to differentiate that the sodiums were bringing out the sour, and the highlights were bringing out the sweet. It, it seemed to me, and I experimented several times to my satisfaction that, yeah, that's pretty much the, the case. Right now, uh, I'm really liking these uh, ceramic metal highlights, the 315 and the 630s, I, and on the blue end, 4,000, 4,200 Kelvin in that range. Um, really, in the bud room, especially the last few weeks, they bring out the sweet. Yeah, wow, that's that's interesting because I've always used metal halides based on the recommendation of a few kind of people, and I always notice that yeah, my harvests do tend to be quite sweet. So there you go, I can attest to that one myself. Something we got uh, a few questions from the fans for was they were interested in the Afghani that you used to cross to the purple tie to create the initial flow line because I think a lot of people maybe assume that it was like a very pure Afghani and maybe very desirable. What were your recollections of it? Yes, it it was. Um, And when it showed up, it came to me late 1979. I don't think I started growing it until uh, early 1980 um, in bag seed form. um, Was grown in Northern California, so just one generation, but they kept it strictly indica. Um, I had a connection with uh, uh, a dealer and a manicurist who, um, we again, we were sharing genetics, so they didn't have a problem with me getting seeds. They were trying to keep those off the market. Point being is I had a small number of these seeds, about 50 of them, 
um, and I was able to, you know, procure a mail. Uh, so first and foremost, they were unlike anything we had at the time. They were stout, uh, um, very symmetric, very uniform, looked like little Christmas trees, very large leaves, green. They didn't go purple at all. Um, thick stems, and they smelled like a dead skunk under the house. Very musky odor. Um, large bulbous calyx, or um, not calyx, I'm sorry, trichome. It's really where we started to see trichomes. Sativa don't have a lot of glandular stalk trichomes. Sativa do have uh, more systolithic hairs that secrete oils directly onto the surface of the leaf. They're not in a sheath like our, our trichome is, is, is in a sheath, and that's this, you know the indica genetics. Um, I would then was fortunate enough to have indica pollen that I took both to the um, purple tie that I had going at the time and the Highland Oaxacan or Juicy Fruit tie. Um, and uh, I did the cross both ways because I had female indicas as well, but I wasn't as interested in, in, in that line, the sativa pollen to the indica. I was much more interested in the indica pollen to the sativa. Um, so, yeah, that indica was very unique, but it was also god-awfully boring. <laughs> and, you know, we, we fell in love with it initially because it was not uh, novel and unique and it made manicuring easy. Oh, and it was done in eight weeks, right? I mean, we, I was dealing with sativas that never finish sometimes, 18, 20, 22-week sativa. Um, and you, manicuring was just uh, a nightmare. It, it had no bag appeal uh, whereas this indica was something different, and it it you know put you on the couch. It was very sedate, which was unlike the things of the times. And that that novelty was its hype, and it became very popular. And in my opinion, overly popular. There was an article in High Times. I think it was the eighty. Three, maybe 82, the cover of the magazine is a picture of an indica bud, a great big indica f uh, finished bud, black background, with a large, large red circle slash over the bud, and the words, ban the bud. <laughs> and uh, it was written by uh, an author, went by the name of R. I always thought it was um, Robert Clark, but I asked him about it, and he denies that it was him. Uh, at any rate, the uh, article went on to say that these indica genetics were polluting the gene pools in the land-raised sativa areas because those people then, the farmers in those regions, thought that's what we wanted. And it, to this day, you're seeing ramifications of that in Jamaica when you see pictures of those squat little indica bushes on the mountainsides in Jamaica. To me, that's just sad. That's just sad. Jamaica was making 18-foot, wispy, willow, um, wonderful sativas. Still can, and I'm sure they still do, but it's it's what the market bears. So, um, yeah, that, 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 that was the indica. I don't have seeds of that. Replicating it, I think, could be done. I just ask myself why, and I look at the list of things I have to do and say, no, I, I have things I'd, I'd rather do than resurrect the indica. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's still in Afghanistan with all the soldiers going back and forth. The states here, I hear rumor of, of a lot of Kandahar and 
and various uh, things that are supposed to be around. But I haven't, I haven't um, personally smelled that dead skunk under the house indica yet. Yeah, that's interesting because you, you referenced it perfectly. The Kandahar is around and um, we've been talking a lot on the show about how the, uh, the roadkill skunk, as people refer to it, is most likely actually an Afghani and not, not really a skunk. <laughs> but um, the, what I'm really interested in about that is when you first created the flow line, did you pop some of those seeds immediately or did they kind of sit on the shelf for a minute and you had some other things to do? Oh, yeah, they sat on the shelf for a minute and had many other things to do. Again, politically, it was a, it was a wretched era. I mean, just surviving those days was, was an effort. Um, and so as I glummed along um, place to place, one of the terrible things in the 80s for me was I would – get my act together, have a place, you know, find a rental, um, establish my grow, get it going, get some R&D going, get some nice, uh, you know, revenue uh, generation potential going, and then you get an eviction notice. And this was just ongoing and ongoing and ongoing, and it was um, terrible. It was, it was manipulated. I kind of witnessed this firsthand, in my opinion, the whole housing bubble on the West Coast was primarily fueled by pot growers. And I saw this firsthand. When I moved in 78, it was a breeze. There were rentals everywhere. The place was just in um, uh, economic shambles in, in, in that capacity, but it was very easy to rent anywhere. The, I think, real estate industry realized who we were and capitalized on us in that you know it wasn't too difficult to figure out who's growing what where you just kind of go by the property and can figure that out and then it starts with inspections oh we need to do an inspection well there's one you know and again during reagan and bush one these were very trying times you did not you know mess with with any of this so um, then the house goes up for sale, and of course you can't qualify to buy it. So here you are out on the rental market again, and so the, the rentals are drying up. There's none. They're they're going down to very few. And I'm showing up to this one where there's an appointment, and there's 200 people there. You know, and as they have a specific time on a weekend to show up, and here's 200 people. <laughs> 50 of us are growers and I recognize us all in the crowd and we're vying for the house. One of us will get it because we always pay on time. We always pay in cash. And starting in those days, we paid 15 to 25% more. That inflates the value of the property. That justifies mortgage rates, you know, uh, and, and mortgages. And, and that's just how that whole, whole thing went. Um, Finally, I, I got out of that out of the Eugene area. It was just uh, impossible. Went out to drier climes, the east side of the state, where things were a lot cheaper. Um, and I think that's still the case today. There are certain places, eastern California, eastern Oregon, eastern Washington, um, Nevada, um, and and who knows what's going to be opening up next? I mean, Idaho would be nice, Utah, <laughs> but. Uh, stranger things have happened. Yeah. So, at what point did you kind of feel a bit more comfortable in Oregon? Like, I guess it was after those turbulent years with Nixon and Bush one and whatnot? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, um, Clinton got in, things things backed down a little. I was traveling a lot, and it was just very apparent and very obvious. You could see, I would take a trip, uh, you know, five, six hours on the freeway, and you would see five or six cars pulled over on the side of the road, everyone out of the car, all the contents out, police digging through. Um, this was just constant, and that finally abated. It backed off about 92 uh, 91, 92, in my opinion, were the worst years. Those were the driest years. Everybody had difficulties surviving that that era. Um, it was rough. And, you know, I think the whole country was ready for a change, which is why things happened. Things lightened up. California began to lighten up the whole medical scene there. It was 96, I think, uh, Prop 215. It was 94 that Dennis Perone was making waves and and people were talking about it anyhow. So, you know, we kind of were coming out of the closet at, at that time. And, yeah, I did feel more comfortable then, especially after going to Europe and Amsterdam. Uh, Europe was miles ahead of us at the time. So was Canada for a, a brief spell there, um, and I took you know advantage of both those places as much as I could. Yeah. Before we jump into that, because we do have a few questions, I just wanted to loop back. When we you mentioned you made those flow seeds initially when you crossed you know the Afghani to the uh, purple tie, was was that the point when you could kind of sense that you know the the blueberry line was locked in it, or was it still further yet? Yeah, still further yet. So those, uh, the purple tie, the, the um, juicy fruit tie, and those Afghan, those would be considered the P1s. The seeds from those um, ties and Oaxacan, those are the F1 seeds. Those seeds were uniform. They were identical. They all looked alike. Uh, from what I've seen of pictures, I always related them to Lebanese plants because Lebanese are kind of in between indica and sativa, long spear-shaped buds, complete cacophony of odor. They had every smell in the book. Little color variation, but I think that may have had something more to do with placement in the room. I was using various colored bulbs at the time, so that that might have had something to do with it. Um, and I just for you know, honesty sake here, truth in, in uh, the whole advertised who's in story, I did not know what I was doing at the time. It was just unfolding and I was witnessing. So I grew out these F1s. Again, they were all quite similar. They had an incredible potency, liked them a, a great deal, and then crossed a few of those. Um, and it was in and around this time, I think it was about 1983, that I finally got a hold of Robert Clark's book, Marijuana Botany. Which I think it might even have been published in 83. Um, and then I was able to go, oh, oh, that's, that's what I'm doing. Um, and it was then, okay, so you have these F1s. You take any two of the F1s, male, female, cross them, um, grow those seeds out in the F2 line. That's where the variants shows up. So then it's in that F2 line that I start to see, say for blueberry, it's a, a berry mother, a berry father. You cross them out to F3. Um, you should see at least 50%, hopefully 25 to 50% of the progeny sporting that uh, phenotype. You then take the best example, male, female, of a berry in the F3 out to an F4. And um, 
what I do then is those F4s, the seeds I make from them, which are the F5s are the ones um, that I sell. Now, when I'm playing around, it's when I started sprouting the F2s was when I went, oh, my God. And that, that was my great epiphany time. Um, and that would have been early 80s, um, 80, 81, um, 82 on, just, just all the way on from there. Every crop I grew from, from that point, every time I sprouted seeds, I saw something new. Um, there's an example when I uh, give my class. Uh, I didn't know this at the time. Again, I've since researched. And what I was witnessing, I think, is something referred to in biology called transgressive segregation. And transgressive segregation refers to um, two very different P1s, very different, uh, crossing them to make F1s that are uniform. I use an example uh, of dogs. It's easier for us to wrap our head around dogs um, and say if you could cross a Chihuahua to a Great Dane, the smallest dog to the biggest dog. And the joke goes, you know, hopefully the Great Dane is the mother. Um but then those would represent your P1s. Your F1s from that crossing would be something right in between them, like a pit bull boxer, uh, very uniform in structure. Um, and any two of those uh, F1 dogs, those boxer-like dogs that you cross, will then give you puppies that if transgressive segregation comes into play, you will see examples larger than the Great Dane and smaller than the Chihuahua. So you see things beyond what the original uh, land race, uh, and that, that's what I witnessed. That's exactly what I witnessed. Flo presented herself. Uh, again, I go by the effect of the finished product, and when I smoked that plant, it was just like, whoa, hello, you're a day brightener. Um, really focused, very motivational, but unique. She is extremely unique. Smokes like a sativa, looks like a sativa, Grows like a sativa, but is done in seven and a half weeks. And in my opinion, uh, the only real difference between indica and sativa is flowering time. Huh. That's a, that's a, gonna ruffle some feathers. <laughs> no, I like that. And so, what do you? Because this is something I've spoken to a few people about, especially Bodhi, because he's got a lot of experience with land races, and he said to me. I've found a Hindu Kush with the exact same terpene profile as uh, a haze. And when I got them tested, they had similar numbers for THC and whatnot. And yet the highs are obviously totally different. And so we're kind of sitting there going, what is it? You know, we've got this plant that smells the same. The numbers are about the same. The only difference is the flowering time. And so, yeah, like, how do you, what do you think is ultimately the cause of the perceptual feeling of a sativa versus an indica? Ah, that's a big, big question, a big, big subject. And it is something that is so big, I think we are going to set the tenets of science on its ears. Because what we're talking about here are the subtleties of a nonlinear dynamic. All right, and I've discussed this with a number of people. All right, we know about THC. You've got your graph. Here's your THC, right? There's your CBD right there and your other minor cannabinoids. In between and all along are all these other little things going, we're going to find that it's one of these little toots that it's up here and this other little toot is right over there. Oh, 
that does this regardless of what the big ones are doing up here. It's those little ones and those ratios between them. Now, how the complexity to map that is unfathomable. Well, we got to start somewhere, right? Now, I, I have some ideas, one of which has to do with a cup. We came up with an idea for a cup that would only utilize one strain. One strain, one clone particularly. I mean, you could expand it out to be seed as well, but really to, to dial this in and to, to use this both as a, as a cup and an experiment, one mother clone. Give the growers a year, two years. Give them two years. They all come back to this cup, and we analyze then what each and every one of them did. Because we've already heard the story. You take a mother plant. You can take 12 cuts off of it, give it to 12 different people, and get 12 different things back. Well, let's do that. Let's analyze the things that come back and then ask the growers, what did you do different? You know, and maybe then we can start parsing out some of the cause and effect as to what this is. Now, myself, what my goal is to replicate the experiences I had from those original land races. Not the seeds I grew here, but <clears throat> those products that came from the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and those other groups from Oaxaca and, and Thailand and India and Nepal, Kashmir, Afghanistan, um, Morocco, Lebanon. Um, they, we haven't got to that magic yet. We're, we're, and, and I, hate to, I always hate to burst people's bubbles when I talk about this, but in, in where we're at now, you're in Australia, you said. It's a little different. Yeah. You, have more, you have a better opportunity in Australia, I think, in terms of replicating a sativa environment than we do here um, in, in the States. But I always I tell people domestically here in the States, we will never equal that equatorial sativa. We can't. However, we're getting very close to making A-grade hash. And I think that's what we need to be focusing on in areas like this, which is what the Afghans did, which is what the Moroccans did and the Lebanese did for thousands of years. And they have a product that when you smoke it and it's done right by the, the people of sincere interest there, you will see the difference. I can only talk about it now. I can't. You have to experience it. You know, it's, it's like a psychedelic. You, you can only talk about it so much. But there is a difference, and the, these differences, I think, are very subtle things. Um, my my favorite herb was the Highland Oaxacan, uh, like I said, and it I think tested out back in the day at seven percent THC, which all the stuff was maxing out at. The most potent stuff they tested in the day was Maui Wowie at ten percent. Um, so there's something else going on there, and it's in these subtle ratios of these various minor elements <clears throat> that we need to parse out and, and, and figure this out. But, you know, hey, we got our work cut out for us, plenty to do there. It's a wild open frontier. I, I find it fascinating. Yeah, okay. So do you really dabble much in the whole concentrate scene outside of hash or are you primarily just a hash guy? Uh, what do you mean by that? Like are you into like BHOs and the distillates oh, yeah, yeah. and all that oh, stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think people in Afghanistan and, and Morocco were as well. They use various solvents and pressure cookers and things for for some of their products and they have for, for a long, long time. Um yeah, any way 
we can make this stuff in a pure form. Um, I know a lot of people are uptight about solvents and, and various things like that, but if it is done right, if people pay attention to detail, and you can tell by testing the finished product whether or not there's anything harmful in there or not, um, by all means, separate out and let's start isolating. I, 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 right now, um, the isolation of individual terpenes is another just fascinating subject, my God. And, and we have here a uh, 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 substance that can provide so many of these on, on a commercial basis, if need be, once we're left alone and can do what we want in that regard. So just to loop back to flow, one of the questions that got submitted by a few different guests, and I was a bit interested in this one myself, what is the exact definitional difference between flow and temple flow? Is temple flow just your keeper flow? No, it was just a name I was banding about at the time. Temple was a reference to Nepalese temple hash. Um, the flow mother, the same one that incidentally is still alive today, um, she sprouted in 1991, so 20, 27 years old. Um, that, that was her appeal. Uh, again, this sativa-looking plant with uh, finishes in seven and a half weeks, um, and uh, the resin from her and, and her overall appeal, it, it was in the line of uh, the best smoke I've ever smoked was Nepalese Temple Ball. Right up there, followed closely by um, Kashmiri Cheris, um, followed closely by some of the Afghan from the late 70s and early 80s, uh, the Brotherhood Afghan. Um, and those, those <clears throat> herbs meant to be consumed as hash, I think, as concentrate. Um, very rare occasions for, for, for doing flour, smoking flour, and only uh, sativa flour, I think, in that capacity. Mainly something to mix with the uh, concentrate other than tobacco. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it, it's uh, concentrates is, is uh, what we're shooting for. Now, the flow... She just had that appeal. She reminded me the most of the Temple Ball. That's where the name Temple Flow uh, came from. Uh, flow also has two connotations, floral and fluorescent. Um, and she, she possessed both characteristics. Fluorescent was a look to the plant and kind of in the feeling. Um, that sharp sharpness that, say, a fluorescent bulb has... That, that type of light uh, and floral, very floral, um, flowery uh, appeal to her in her terpenes. Um, they're all testing, most of my things test high in beta caryophyllene and myrcene. And I have some test results somewhere from these latest ones. Some odd things in there. Uh, I'm, I'm still parsing this out myself and learning about. Uh, various terpenes. Uh, terpenes, too, are when you have a pure terpene and you mix it with another terpene, depending on the amount, the ratio between the two terpenes, you can create an entire um, ar uh, array of, of flavors. 
the adding a little oxygen here, uh, hydrogen there, uh, just changes things uh, a lot. I think they start, they all start with the rose smell, geraninol, and it's built on from there to make lemons and oranges and fruits and woods and, and um, again, a fascinating subject, which I think is a, is a great place for us, for human beings to begin learning about nonlinear dynamic will be in these terpenes and the sense of smell sense of smell in the brain just is another is a fascinating subject it's very closely associated with memory widely dispersed throughout the central nervous system um, and also very highly associated with cannabinoid uh, receptors yeah yeah a hundred percent so Something I've, I've said to people in the past is that it's exactly what you just said with the terpenes is that terpenes at, even at different concentrations can have different smells. So like the, the possible array you can get is almost exponential. But the question I have is, do you think it's possible given you know the right genetics being aligned and whatnot that cannabis can create any smell? Possibly. I've, you know, I postulate, I've wondered about this for a long time, and I think about other species of plant that have as wide an array, cacophony of odor as cannabis. And the only other family I can think of is mint. Um, there's, a, there's a wide variety in mint. And I would think that through selective breeding, and just in my own experience, I have Ah, my God, and hazes, you know, these, and I have so many hazes that I've had to put on the shelf because their commercial potential is low, especially through the eras we've been through. We needed the bag appeal, but I have them labeled. I know what they are. Every flavor of haze, every, every imaginable flavor, um, it, it's boggled my mind. Um, there was a smell, I, I think I referred to it either in my book or in an article since then. I called it... Um, ethnic holiday there was ethnic holiday and then there was funeral parlor um (laughs) both of which i mean ethnic holiday for me i came from an east european family so when i would go to say christmas the smells in that household between the foods and the tobaccos and the colognes and the alcohols and the christmas tree and just everything going on and then the memory, and it's great because when I start playing around with these herbs, squeeze a bud and smell it, I remember my grandma's house. It's, oh, ethnic holiday. Yeehaw. Uh, funeral parlor is heavy on the lily and formaldehyde. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. Funeral parlor. <laughs> some some names just, just are appropriate. Mm-hmm. So, last little step in this whole journey. Can you take us from flow to blueberry? How did that little transition happen? Well, it wasn't really a transition. They they were parallel, you know, along. They developed oh, okay. side by side by side. Yes, um, I have notes. My notes are 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 wretchedly. Um, I understand them. They were a work in progress. You know, I different experiments with different things. Initially, like when I started seeing these things in my F twos, I started labeling them. I would assign each plant two capital letters. That's where the FX came from. Um, there were W. W was for wide leaf. B was for berry or blueberry. Um, 
It had, you know, O for orange, things, things like that. A lot of them were flavors. Others were a structural phenomenon or how much resin they were putting out. So I would take the two most prominent traits, assign those two letters, and that would be the label to that plant. The next generation then would be two capital letters by two capital letters, whatever the cross happened to be. I always you know, got in the habit of doing the female first and the male second just to have consistency throughout. Um, and then, you know, when you go to the next generation, of course, you have two letters by two letters by two letters by two letters. It starts getting complicated. And so I experimented with a bunch of these different numeric labeling systems. I have one. It works for me. Um, but I can go back in and, and kind of identify certain things. I've got, this will be put to the test in the not-too-distant future when I go back and search for certain things, like a cherry variety or, uh, say, a very sweet orange or a sweet cedar uh, haze and, and see if I can actually go back in the catalog through my notes and, and find. I'm, I'm pretty confident I can. Getting them to sprout, growing them out the whole nine yards then, uh, looking forward to doing that in the not too distant. I think everyone's looking forward to you doing that. <laughs> um, so at this point when you had, you know, the flow and the blueberry running parallel, you developing them, was this the point when you realized you were really onto something and did you have to kind of make a choice between the two in terms of which one you wanted to put forward more or did it just work itself out like that in the end? No, it just worked out like that. Blueberry, of course, she was the one that has the most commercial appeal out of the two. Flow was almost a counterpart to Blueberry. Now, mind you, again, my primary focus is on satisfying my own head. And through those years, through, through, through those years um, the combination of smoking Blueberry and Flow to me was the closest I would get to smoking the Highland Oaxacan. So it was a, a blending of, of those two herbs and just for my own satisfaction I kept those plants that I most enjoyed smoking and that you know just turned out to be what other people in, enjoyed as well I get you know asked well, how did you come up with the blueberry how, how did you do this I always go to this one term the term is healing healing blueberry it's the one that best helped me heal to feel right in my body right and over time um and flow did the same thing, and they both had equal merit in my mind. Uh, to, to be perfectly honest, flow I think had a little bit more merit for me personally, but blueberry had more commercial potential. So you know that 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 saved her place in the veg room, so to speak, in the in the mother room uh, to keep her going. And it's always been that. What do, what do you have the space for, and and what not? Yeah, it's it's really interesting you mention that because I've, you know, like many people, grown out a pack of blueberry before. Unfortunately, I didn't find my keeper. But what I did really find was that a lot of the the feeling of the high very much encompassed that healing aspect you said. And I, that, it really caught me off guard. You know, I wasn't expecting that, especially of plants that finished so early. And that was another thing I wanted to mention. Did you purposely keep that in mind because i've noticed blueberry finishes so stably early it's a really yeah. great trait yeah it is it, it was intentional it was very utilitarian for the era 
Um, if I do it over again, it won't be as much as a factor. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I'm beginning now seeing the, how commercial acceptance of auto flowers. Um, and I think that there are certain uh, subtle quality traits that may only be present in an auto flower line. Um, so things like that. And again, that's our job to be looking for this. It, it, it just fascinates me to no end that I can go online. I can go to, and look to other growers, look to other people, see what other people are doing. <clears throat> when I released um, Blueberry and Flow Seeds um, initially, um, not so much the flow seeds. The flow seeds came from one mother, but the blueberry, the uh, uh, blue, uh, blue heaven, and the blue moonshine. Initially, those seeds that I'd sent to Europe and that I uh, and had gone to uh, Mark Emery um, had several mothers and several different male contributors. They weren't from a single line. There was variance in there. I did that intentionally. Now, the finished product was going to be blueberry or blue moonshine, but some leaned more sativa, some leaned more indica. What I wanted to see was to utilize the grow reports from the community before it was in 1998 then that I decided on a stretch indica uh, a female and that F4 blueberry dad and that was by, you know, again, the, the number of responses that, that people were posting online in terms of, oh, this is what, you know, what I prefer, had my, my, my best luck here. But there was a lot of variance in those seeds. I think that might have something to do with this phenomenon when you hear pre-98. Pre-98 this, pre-98 that is I released a, a wide variance of genetics up to 98 and then beginning in 98, it was one mother, one father. And since that time, it's been one mother and one father of blueberry for my stables. Now, as far as what other people, Dutch Passion, Sagar Mother, whomever is doing with blueberry, I have no idea. I'm not involved with those at all. Um, so who knows? It's, it's anybody's guess there. Wow. So many avenues in which we could jump into from there. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a lot of information. Yeah. All right. I'll try to not miss them all. Let's go to the first one. What I've noticed is some of these lines you referenced, you know, the Blue Moonshine, Blue Haven, these more variant lines, some of them to me seems like they've amassed the biggest cult following of them all. Do you ever notice that and do you ever kind of get pressured to bow into it and maybe re-release them yourself or it's just not on your horizon, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and I could. I do have another version of Blue Moonshine right now. I have this Blue Heaven going. She completely satisfies that. I need to smoke the offspring. I haven't tested her fully yet. The seed might qualify to be called Blue Heaven if it smokes. You know, the, the bud from that seed smokes such. I haven't been able to test it yet. Uh, it has the smell. It has the appeal. And I like the name Newberry, so I might just uh, go that route. Um, but they, again space and time and as it presents itself and as we're able to uh, lock some of these in um yes by all means and i have copies of everything absolutely everything i've ever released and the parent stock and the parent stock to that and so all the way back to the p1s i'm i'm been holding off specifically a number of reasons the main one being that the industry in my opinion right now is just far too unstable 
It's, you know, the, the, the moneyed interests are playing their hand right now. That adds a lot of confusion. There things, the price, just the, the price of, of, of herb, what it ends up being. Um, these things run through all sorts of cycles and phases. And so I'm kind of sitting that out until, uh, in essence, you know, what, what will happen in the future is a lot of these grow spaces and all their equipment are going to become available from some of these companies that go bankrupt pennies on the dollar. And so I'm just waiting for a nice little space to show itself. You don't want to do this in the midst of the legalization frenzy. You can. When things go up to, you know, hundreds of dollars a square foot for warehouse space that used to go for pennies a square foot because people are trying to capitalize on this, it's impossible to work in that environment. And then the legal, you know, situation that once I get established somewhere, how do I protect myself? How do I, you know, the, these things are, remain to be seen. Uh, once that happens, though, I'm looking forward. I, I put out this uh, thing. I just sort of wrote it not too long ago. I just shared it among certain few people. I had to do the GoFundMe. And it was raising a bunch of money to do a GoFundMe for me to grow out. I had a bunch. Of, I was going to do everything under one of them, all the way back to my P1s. But then I whittled that down. I said, no, just F4s and F5s, everything I've released. Absolutely everything I have released, you know, including the parent stock, um, all the way back, and grow it all out. It would be a few thousand plants. And then do an open pollination. Every male, every female in there, just boom. Um, hit them all up, make a few million seeds, sell them for two bucks a piece to the people that invested in the GoFundMe, and then give people the opportunity to, you know, you, you, we, we would have verification. You got these genetics from this. Here's all my notes going all the way back. We can verify these genetics. And then we established sort of like an AKC for dogs for pedigree, for establishing standards for lines, all these types of things, but also to allow the community access to all these genetics I have on an equal basis. When I planned it out, it was like you couldn't invest more than 4% of whatever the GoFundMe would be. Um, you can only buy as much seed as you invested in. You can either trade in your investment or keep your investment stable and purchase the seed at $2 a piece. In doing so, just the the, the uh, production of the seed would fund the entire um, operation, um, and it would take maybe two years, uh, three at the most. We want to be really be thorough; it'd be three years guarantee to be able to make enough seed to satisfy, you know, the world market on this, um, and then go to one of these failing uh, grow ops and say, well, here, let us lease your space for a couple hundred thousand dollars a year instead of having to go in and invest millions of dollars buying something. And I just, I, that's kind of lining up. I see it happening. Uh, just, I'm waiting. It's just waiting. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. It seems like some of the people who jump in too early get punished, especially financially. So just to clarify, uh, the Blue Heaven line that is essentially just like a, a very anti-anxiety phenotype of the blueberry? Correct. Correct. Fantastic. Yeah, because I think that's that's the one that which, from what I've been able to research, has the biggest kind of following and push for it to come back because I think, as you'd be aware, already people think of blueberry as a very anti-anxiety line. So 
to have what you would consider to be, you know, the pinnacle of that, it's just kind of the next level, right? Yep, exactly. Exactly. And it's subtle. That's the thing about it. There are subtleties. I, I, I like to, the analogy I like to use with the cannabis industry, where it's at right now, is it's like cooking. And it's like chefs. And all of our contemporary, the breeders of today are like chefs who have just discovered the spice rack. Right? And then what is the, incl- oh, put a bunch of this in and put a bunch of this in. And, put, and they get all of these, again, cacophonies of things together. And what I found in my experience is that when we then isolate those uh, special flavors and, and, again, their ratio to other flavors is what makes a true delicacy in that analogy. Yes, I agree. Certainly sometimes less is more as well. <laughs> so just to loop back on what you mentioned a minute ago, you said you're not too sure what uh, Dutch Passion or Saga Martha are doing with the blueberry. We did get some inquiry. What was, you know, without going into any details you don't want to, what was the situation with Dutch Passion? Because obviously they released some of your lines for a while and then that kind of split. What's kind of your recount of generally what happened there? Yeah, um, I can't... I don't know, I guess I could say they ripped me off, but not really, because he paid me the minimum amount I, I think he could have. I was, again, due to political uh, circumstances, I was under a barrel. There was nothing I could do. Um, I had to take whatever I could get. Uh, I had just left Sagarmatha, who didn't really... The, the, he, he, I got ripped off by Sagarmatha, that I can say very very plainly and clearly um i did get my seed collection back took that over to dutch passion had a deal going with them uh which should have gone on in in perpetuity uh forever but uh hank being a dutch businessman he is just decided one day that oh you know let's not don't take this personally it's only business but i don't feel i should have to pay you anymore and and you know gave me uh we spread it out it was a kind of a large payment the deal i had i don't mind sharing this it was i think 30 cents a seed i was getting a euro on but he was producing what a hundred thousand seeds a year so and from my perspective that's kind of what i want i set up a few of those in different places and then i'm i'm all set but that has to go on uh for a while i did visit some lawyers in amsterdam at the time and they all just gave me the shrug shoulder and sorry you're a little too early for this and there's nothing we can do for you um <clears throat> and i know that hank has made a considerable amount of money i maybe 60,000 euros is what I got totally uh, from the whole whole deal um, over the course of what uh, seven eight years? Um, no, not even that long. And and uh, the main thing I wanted when I left, what was important to me. See, Hank was uh, registering the names of Blueberry with the Benelux Market Bureau. And that's where he needed my help, uh, proving this was my intellectual property. And I have all of this paperwork. I have every letter. So if push ever comes to shove, I mean, I've I've got all this evidence here to go. But litigation to me is a a big waste of energy, you know, to avoid it as much as possible. Um, But he wanted this because of uh, Sagarmatha. 
at the time when he was registering Blueberry, you know, the Benelux Market Bureau's uh, solicits anyone that's using that trademark and says, oh, is this okay? Tony's lawyer said, no. Hank wrote to me, says, hey, send me all the information you've got proving this is your intellectual property. It was a stack of papers, I don't know, almost an inch thick. Um, Hank gets that a few months later, I get an email. Oh, excellent. I, my attorney says with the information you said that this is proof positive and we have 999 to one chance of winning the case. Um, that information got submitted to Tony's lawyer at Sagarmada, who then quit on huh. Tony because I think it was apparent in, in that paperwork that no buddy, this isn't yours. Um, and so when I then left Dutch Passion, my primary concern was, well, Hank, well, getting my seed collection back, which I did. And number two, to have the rights to those names in the European market. And I have that in writing. So, you know, I, I got the important thing. I, I, to me, the losses are nowhere near as important as staying focused on what's in the future because that's by far more valuable yeah and so i guess the the one kind of question i have remaining on that topic is a lot of people will commonly say that over the years it's common for dutch companies to lose parents and to not even say anything and to still offer seeds and quality deteriorates do you think that a similar thing may have occurred with the stuff they're offering you know in the blueberry lines and whatnot yeah, I'm almost positive. I don't have firsthand knowledge, but I did hear from a number of people. I'm connected well enough in the community there, people that did work for uh, growing in, in some of these communities. Like uh, Dutch Passion, I think, was uh, contracting Soma to grow some of their things and, and various other people in, in that uh, Amsterdam grow scene. But yes, they lose their things all the time. Um, and then just try to replicate them. I think with mine, they probably just bought a pack of seeds and took it from there. But yeah. I, I don't have firsthand uh, knowledge. Okay. So just as a little change of scenery, I wanted to ask you, do you really keep track on any of the strains that are made with blueberry that start to gain a lot of traction? And do you view that as like just a positive thing for blueberry? Like, So I guess the two poster childs would be Blue Dream, for one, obviously, and you know you kind of address that with your version of it. But the other one, for me, a personal note, my favorite strain is the Blue Magoo. And I don't know if you really know much about that, but there's actually a bit of a rumor that you made that. I don't think it's true, but I'd love to hear you know your kind of thoughts on how do you view the strains that you know like kind of half blueberry and really take off, and do you follow that at all? No, you know, it's like a, a car wreck. When you go by, you got to kind of look at it. Um, as, as far as the, the Blue Magoo in particular, I don't know about that one. Blue Dream, it, it's great hype. You know, I mean, it, 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 that doesn't hurt um, at all. I, can, I tried replicating the Blue Dream with Azure Haze. It was a, kind of the same cross, but so much of this is based on hype, right? Something new comes along, it, it catches people's fancy, and, and for whatever reason, it has that, that marketing aspect to it that people just glom onto. Um, Blue Dream, the name, you know, uh, and the name game is, is so um, prevalent in, in the industry. I, I'd hope that we would be able to progress beyond that. Uh, keep it as sort of a, uh, you know, a 
fun little entertainment thing. But yeah, I think that's that's a, a, a lot of what's going on. Now, I did not, if, if I did make the Blue Magoo, it's without my knowledge. Uh, someone else came up to me at a show one time. I was selling clones out of a place in San Francisco, CMH or something. See, I don't, I don't even remember the name of it. They had a giant Buddha statue in their lobby. They ended up closing early. Um, one of the nicer scenes, too, it had on-site consumption, and it was right there in the city. And they were selling clones in a bunch of them. Uh, they, they closed then, and, and that went on their way. I never heard from anyone until one day I'm at a show. I think it was at Emerald Cup. And a fella comes up and says, you know, I worked there, and I worked in their clone room. And I just want you to know that they took that blueberry, and they crossed it. I forget what the heck they said they crossed it with, and I forget what he said it made. But it was something like Bubba Kush or, or Big Kush or one of the big name brand strains. Again, think Grateful Dead, Grateful Dead family. To me, it's, it's a minor incidental having this competition out there compared to the prize that yet awaits. Um, so that's what I'm going to focus on. Now, yep. um, what, we're, what we're talking about is intellectual property rights, right? And, and you know, there's a lot of law that's already established in that regard. Um, I just the same thing for me as, as it is for tomatoes would be great. Um, I'm concerned, as we all should be, about major conglomerates, you know, uh, uh, people with a little too much control and influence trying to take over this. One of my biggest concerns moving forward has been for a while now that I'm going to be doing my work in a, in a legal uh, environment and to someday get a cease and desist order from, you know, a, a, a major corporation. And, I, I, you know, just so your listeners know, it used to be Monsanto, now it's Bears, it's just you know, for, for reference sake in those regards, but there are other, other corporations doing this as well, people within the, the cannabis industry. So, you know, how do I best go about protecting myself in this? And, and, and I'm, I'm open to, uh, many possibilities. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Well, one possible solution to that problem I've heard is that if people get um, basically their work within the public domain, it can restrict the ability for people to patent, copyright those things. And specifically, I think we've heard that Phylos is one avenue in which this can happen. Do you know much about Phylos and would you consider doing that if it was the case? Yes, I do. I, I met them a, a while ago, I think when they were um, getting going, Mowgli and Sham, Nishan, um, and... I, I years ago, this was presented to me at uh, Hempfest in Seattle by Mowgli that his intent was to do what he was calling an open cannabis project. And it's like an open source software thing, but applied to cannabis genetics, which I wholeheartedly agree with and I think is probably the best way to go. If things have been released commercially, they are out there, how best to deal with this, I think, is to make this public domain. And in that capacity, that protects me, I think, you know, from getting that cease and desist letter, at least one one way in which to do that. Now, as far as where Phylos is right now, I know they're providing the service, as are other companies, where you can have your genetics identified and then, you know, uh, associated with your name or company. 
that at least gives you some legal uh, uh, foothold in in this this whole thing as it unfolds. But I, I, I really I don't know where these companies are now. For example, um, Phylos was supposed to be doing the Cannabis Genome Project, which they're not anymore. And I don't know why. I don't know why this went to a company in Colorado. Once I start getting some answers to this, you know, it'll it'll become. Uh, more clear. Uh, in the meantime, I do trust what they're doing. I, I do agree with this open cannabis project. Um, there's a woman, her name is is Beth. I was on a panel with her at uh, Hempfest. I meant to have her card and contact information. She's actually doing this right now, this, this open uh, cannabis project. Um, a project I can find that information and and send it to you uh, but she is uh, being in earnest um, uh, attempting to make this a reality so hopefully you know with with agreements people like myself we could we can make that happen and then uh, move move forward from that point yep yep so just to jump off the whole legal downer, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, in your opinion, what differentiates flow from F13? Oh, yeah. Uh, F13 was from uh, the floral line, the flow line. Um, and F13 was simply the label of that plant. I was doing, we were down to the final selections. I had 12 jars. I was up in Vancouver, BC. They brought them over to me. And I'm going through those jars. And that one, it was F13. Every time I went to it, I said, oh, my, hello. She had an immediate, very, very immediate effect with the long-term uh, onset. Uh, and it was just special. She, I could tell right away, you're a, you're a, a party um, waiting to happen. Um, and I looked at it, so what am I going to call this? And I looked at the label, it said F13. I see yeah, F, nice letter, 13, nice number, why not? And that's what, what got its label. So it is a more uh, direct relative to flow, and I can see how it's, it's more psychedelic. I love the uh, description Jason King gave F13, uh, the compliment Jason King gave F13 when he said smoking F13 is like smoking a Grateful Dead show. So, I mean that that in terms of psychedelia, that's a pretty high compliment, and it's it's what it does though. It's like flow. Flow is motivational and focused, whereas F thirteen is more psychedelic focused. Yeah. Wow. And so, this is kind of maybe a bit of an odd question, but do you like flow more than blueberry? Because what's weird is when I talk to people about this especially like the big name breeder friends I talk to, all of them have this real memorable story about smoking flow and they're like, oh, there's something about flow, you know. Do you think it's like a little bit of the unsung hero? It is. It is. And she, you know, she doesn't have a lot of bag appeal. She's got a bit more of that musky uh, temple ball hashy uh, aroma to her. She is nowhere near couch lock. So couch lock people that smoke her, what is this shit? Get it away from me. They, they don't understand. I can't enter her in cups because she's got one of the slowest come-ons. It's 45 minutes to an hour before you're fully, you know, appreciating what this herb does. And it has a four to five hour effect. And in terms of, you know, yeah, I'm trapped on a desert island. I got to pick one strain and smoke for the rest of my life. It would probably be flow over blueberry. I think so. There you go. 
So one question we had sent in by our good friend Mass Medical Strains, he said, you know, he actually, in one of the previous interviews, he recounted his little awesome story with Flo from when he was younger. He said it was really impactful. But he's packed a few pops of Flo, and he said basically he's had trouble finding the keeper he's looking for. And he wanted to know, do you think it's a little bit of a harder plant to wrangle indoors? Does it do a bit better outdoors, or do you think he should be able to do all right indoors with it? That's a good question. Um, I know she likes outdoors. She likes to trail along. You can bend her, God, 20, 30 feet sometimes. She'll vine along, put out side branches too that you can uh, put wherever you like. Um, and it, it kind of depends on what people are looking for too. You have to realize she's those seeds are the, the flow, my flow clone is the mother and it's the blueberry that's the father. So you're seeing a bit of blueberry influence in that seed line. The, I will say this, both the F4 Flow and the F4 Blueberry mother cuts are available. They are out commercially available. I've been trying to establish someplace that I could tell you to go and get them, but that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> they kind of floated out, you know, and it is sometimes a place succeeds, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but they are out there. I'll say that much. I do know JD has some in Eugene. There's some in both Southern and Northern California right now as well. And once they are well established where they're at, I believe they will be commercially available and I can send you somewhere to get them. But they are the F4 mother flow and blueberry. And the reason I did that, you know, people were amazed. Why did you release your mother stock? Oh my God. I said, well, there's been enough seeds that the, a good representation of her should be out there somewhere to begin with. But mainly, this is the main thing. I want people to know what my version, my idea of blueberry and flow are. And the best way to do that is through their mother plant. And then here you go. And they've, they've held, you know, flow, even though I say she's 27 years old, um, 98, so what, 20 years for the uh, blueberry mother and father and hasn't lost anything in that time. You just sprung a good question to mind for me. In that time, you know, they're very old cuts. Have you noticed any deterioration at all? You know, people sometimes reference genetic drift. Do you believe in that? Um, it might exist. Um, and if it does, it doesn't for these two. Uh, 20 years on now, they're, they're not the same mother in the same pot. And I do have a rejuvenation method I like to uh, suggest to people, uh, recommend and that's taking, you know, mother I've been working with all winter and taking her in April, May, whenever you can get her outside. Take her outside, dump her out of the pot, cut those roots right off. Take anything that is not a bright white root, even when you're transplanting small things. Anything that's wrapped tight or discolored, pull right off. The plant will love you for it. She will immediately put out new roots. Um, and then you put that plant in the ground April, May. She rejuvenates, comes back through one leaflet, three leaflets, five leaflets, seven, nine, however many she's supposed to have. Uh, late July, early August, take that cut. Take a bunch of cuts off of her, and that's your mother plant through uh, the winter again. And then that's that, that tends to rejuvenate, bring these back. I've also heard that tissue culturing. Um, numerous times where you reculture the culture like 13 times is supposed to bring a plant back to an absolute state of health and vigor. 
so a common theme that I've noticed within your breeding work is that you tend to do inbreeding within your own lines, mixing them together as opposed to bringing in external things, especially bringing in, say, like hype of the month strains. Do you ever consider bringing in more external things or are you just more content to work within your own creations? Yeah, I have more in my library than I'm going to be able to get to in my lifetime. Um, four or 500 different varieties. I have maybe 100 things that I've never sprouted yet. Um, again, a big enough space with time um, that that can happen pretty quickly. One thing that's been happening for me is I've been acquiring some land race genetics um, I've only sprouted one out to kind of test their authenticity and they're, they're definitely unique and real. A character, a person that I met, um, and it's, it's kind of a funny story. I met him in Michigan at the High Times Cup. He came up, I have some seeds. I have some seeds from Kashmir. And, from, and he showed them to me. And I looked at the seeds and I was stunned and impressed. I recognized them. And I go, oh. These are quite very tiny. They were tiny, dark, uh, solid color, no striping, um, and various. There were a couple. He had four like different things. Uh, I gave him like four hundred dollars for those. But we established a rapport, and I've been seeing him at various shows, and he's been giving me a number of different things. I have maybe fifty different land races now from way back in India, Nepal, Thailand, South America, Africa, um, just a lot of places. I think he even has some things from Australia, Indonesia. Um, and they're all different. They're all, some of the seeds are huge. Some of them are tiny. Um, <clears throat> I sprouted out some Turkish. I didn't grow them long enough. Um, I was in an R&D project, had to take them down in eight weeks. They probably should have gone 12 Pass some on, though, to uh, some friends who are growing those out. Uh, interesting aroma I gave it. I called it um, New Running Shoes and Cologne. <laughs> kind of smelled like. So, you know, unique things uh, going on there. I'm looking forward to sprouting those out um, and then kind of redoing. I would also really like, I have a bunch of my F1s. Now, I've never frozen them. Um, never refrigerated either. I've just kept them in a dark place. Uh, on occasion in the past, I've gotten them to pop and put a tail out, but that's as far as they went. They'd succumb to mold or mildew. I did not have the time or space to deal with them, but I have a couple hundred of them. And if I can just get a small handful of those to sprout, um, which I'm sure given modern technology will we can we can pull off um all i need is a male and a female and i can do the whole thing all over again from scratch only this time knowing full well what i'm what i'm looking for and isolating um in in those ways in an environment that's number one big enough and safe enough um, to, to, to do this. So that's what I would like to do. But as far as any work, hybridized work, no. Uh, last time I did anybody else's hybrid work was back in, uh, good God, the 80s. And I regretted it every time. I said, why did I do this? <laughs> no, I've got other things I need to focus on. And um, again, people fall in love with plants, structure the plant. They like them to get big, 
they like colors, flavors, but but that finished product, how does it smoke? How does it smoke? And and that that takes uh, some some effort and some focus. So just to touch on the land races for a moment, if you did say pop through them and you had a good germination rate, which would be the one you'd be most wanting to work with first if you could only pick one? Uh, again, you know, that would present itself with its with its smoke, with the flour, the concentrate, or the finished product. How does that finished product make me feel? And it could come from anywhere. One thing I'd, I'd never gotten to that I was always interested was Equatorial African. And I have some from a, another person, uh, a guy I met who is from Ghana. He was born there and grew up there, and he's now here in the States. And uh, he had access to some Ghanese genetics that I have as well. I also have some things from Togo. Uh, I'd be interested in, in Kenya as well. Anything e- equatorial, the, the, the black African um, land race, I think would have some interesting uh, aspects to it. Now, another thing going into the future is going to be testing, of course. And that's how scientists do it. That's how the lab or the the grow in Mississippi, the government uh, grow that's in Mississippi, they go strictly by, you know, uh, where the plant came from, crossing it to itself, and then testing the the finished product. Um, and, And that's going to guide where a lot of things go. I think also answer a lot of questions. Uh, THCV, CBDV, uh, CBG, I think is another hot item right now. I'm noticing it in a, in a a happy pussy has some, uh, 1% CBG. Um, and there's something about, I was reading, um, some article about CBG with beta caryophyllene and that is some, um, very unique recessive genotype, um, so that that's going to, I think, influence the way a lot of things are going to go. What what's what's going to be in demand? Again, when we're on a level playing field, and when we can offer this as a legitimate, marketable pharmaceutical uh, botanical, things are going to change, right? Uh, say a terpene becomes popular, and some company just needs bucket loads of this terpene. Uh, well, if you have the strain that's really putting out high in that terpene, it puts you ahead of the game and uh, things like that. And these things, are they're going to unfold. So as far as, you know, which area, Highland Thai, um, the area, Myanmar, used to be called Burma. I think there's still a Burma too. Um, but up there, that that high northern Laos the Golden Triangle, any place that poppies do well, <laughs> wine, tobacco, uh, cannabis seems to do well there too. Actually, there is one other thing I could add in regards to testing, the testing of cannabis, and how, uh, in regards to the testing of cannabis, what we lack in their industry right now is a standard a standard for testing. What's going on is people are, in essence, concentrating or isolating the most potent parts of their uh, plant in order to determine its its potency and overall chemical nature. 
And I just wanted to pass on that what I plan to do when I do work in the future for my own um, analysis of these things is I want to take near maturity, you know, right, right near harvest, uh, an entire live branch, uh, stem, leaves, buds and all, get that bone dry and then test that, grind it up into a powder and test that powder randomly, which will then let me know the exact specific potency and characteristic of what's in these whole plants as opposed to just these isolated, uh, very resinous areas. I mean, if you're going to test that way, then, then just test for concentrate, right? If you're going to concentrate, then, then concentrate. Other than that, I want to know what's in that whole plant, including shade leaves, stems, things like that. Even roots. I mean, there's some interesting things going on in roots. So that's an, uh, another thing to take into consideration and to look at in the future. Yeah, certainly. That it raises an interesting question in my mind because I was reading the other day that one of the common reasons um, that samples in California had failed over the past year, not the most common reason, but it was one of the common reasons, was that it said homogeneity among sample. And I thought, is that... Is that like what I think it is where they're saying that, you know, they took samples from different parts of the tree or whatever and it was all homogenous and they were like, there's something up here. There should be some variation. Is that is that kind of what they were getting at, do you think? I don't know. But when you do isolate down to very specific parts of the flower, you're going to find similarities across samples. Um, it, it's, um, I don't know, it's just, it's it's another fascinating subject. We need... Um, this, the standardization back when the government used to test, you know, in the sixties and seventies, they would just take a random bloop out of whatever, um, they were dealing with, which is part of the reason why I think, you know, the highest THC percentages we were seeing back then was about 7%, 10%, I think on the Maui Waui was the highest, um, um, back in the day, but it's also indication that there's other things going on there. Um, other things to look for, other cannabinoids, other terpenes, and, and you know, got a lot of work cut out for us. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe a better way of phrasing what I was asking was, like, I, I commonly hear people say that, you know, buds at the top of the plant will have maybe a little bit lower levels of cannabinoids than ones at, say, the shoulders of the plants because, you know, they're not copping. And... So I guess it does come down to like, yeah, where are people taking these samples from specifically? And I guess your your solution addresses that problem, or is that what you're trying to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and just just for a side note, there back in the day, my favorite buds on the plant were those little popcorn things way deep inside that weren't getting uh, upset or or you know too much exposure to light or air. Um, they were the most interesting and, and there's all the, all over the plant, there's interesting things going on, but yeah, taking a whole branch, leaf stems and all gives me a much, uh, better understanding of how that whole plant is reacting, especially to the plant next to it. Uh, when I test them all in that way, then I can really begin to, uh, suss some of this stuff out. So as far as, you know, which area Highland Thai, um, the area Myanmar used to be called Burma. I think there's still a Burma too, um, but up there, that that high northern Laos, 
the Golden Triangle, any place that poppies do well, <laughs> wine, tobacco, uh, cannabis seems to do well there too. Yeah, that's that's an interesting analogy I never quite thought of. I do know, however, <clears throat> and it was brought up, that uh, you've got a, a neat little story about when you got to smoke some black African weed. Would you mind telling us that one? Yeah, it's probably the strongest herb I'd ever encountered, and it was straight herb. It looked terrible. It, it and tasted like, you know, the stuff you find in a gutter that dried up, just that vegetative, basic, rotten, molded vegetative. It was black, dry, crumbly, tasted like leaves, um, didn't, didn't have a particular um, flavor, so to speak, kind of sagey. Um, pin joint, a pin joint of the stuff between four adult sized people, man. And it was like, almost like DMT, a cartoon. You just, uh, points of reality, it became different references, uh, lasted a while. Um, I never possessed any other than in a rolled joint form. Um, I did get to roll the joints, you know, saw from the bags on more than one occasion. It was two occasions that I had access. I think I smoked it three times. Uh, same thing every time. Uh, we were doing PCP at the time. You know, it was one of the drugs that was available, and we had to wonder, was there PCP in here? But no, it was it was pot. It was straight pot. Uh, very dream dream state. Just just uh, you reality shifted. And and you just looked at life differently, completely differently for that for that whole time. It was giddy, very goofy. You couldn't help but laugh. Uh, real tight, you know, cheek muscle. <laughs> um, a bit overwhelming, um, and uh, what's a dissociative in in that regard, where you know it could evoke pa- paranoid thinking, all the things associated with uh, the heavy psychedelic dose but yeah it was impressive um herb and everything i've read about all the people i've talked to that have had you know seen the similar thing had the same experience people have had reports of levitation and just all kinds of silly things on this herb um i'd love to get some more i saw a weird television thing years ago maz and hadn't left michigan this was still in the 70s and it was some kind of a documentary thing it was in black and white maybe i just had a black and white tv back in the day i'm not sure and these guys were going around all these different hash places and just documenting it uh they showed afghanistan where they had mules or donkeys up on the press and how they squeezed it out and this black goo is coming out the edges, shiny. Um, but they went to these pygmies in, in Kenya, and the, the herb plants just look like hedges, giant bushes out in the bush. They were, they were the bush. And these pygmies, these little pygmy people were rubbing it, hand rubbing it, and putting it in a big chillum. And smoking it up, but again, you could see on the, on that video the the sheen to that hash, how sticky it was, and how high they got. And it wasn't like a pro; it was a uh, not a pro hash thing. It was an anti drug kind of documentary where they were just showing all this 
hash production, um, but it would. I know that's the stuff I'm after. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and out of curiosity, where were you when you were able to try it? In the Detroit area again. Uh, got it from a cousin. My cousin, the drummer. Do you think it was import or grown in the states? No, it was import. It was African weed. Um, it, he was a jazz musician. He taught jazz drumming, as a matter of fact, and he had those connections in the Detroit area. In that regard, for history, I don't know if you're familiar with a book called um, Really the Blues by Mez Mezro. M-E-Z-Z-M-E-Z-Z-R-O-W, I believe his name is spelled. Um fascinating read i don't know why it's not required reading um in college i think it's even out of print he wrote this in the 40s uh he was a pot dealer in harlem uh a jewish guy uh played clarinet jazz musician selling what was called golden leaf golden leaf came up from new orleans it was grown in the caribbean from african stock that came over with the slave trade. And this was the herb of the jazz musicians, the golden leaf. Uh, the book has a bunch of amazing, uh, it's, it's, it's just a fascinating read. They used to call Pop Mez um, in, in his honor. Um, but this, this African herb, it, it goes back quite a ways. Burroughs, the same thing. It was growing in Mexico, and he went down to Mexico to grow some of it. The gold, that, that Oaxacan um, was along those lines. Uh, that had a very frankincense, uh, cedar, candy cedar, incense, smell flavor, uh, Catholic church incense, uh, very much... And, and again, just uh, enlightening. Now, that stuff was very pleasurable. See, the African, that was more, it's like DMT. It was more serious, whereas the golds were by far more pleasurable, powerful. Um, another herb that would got uncomfortable at times was any of the island herb, Jamaican, Hawaiian, could be far too potent sometimes. Yeah, wow. This is all just like I never would have thought. So, I mean, something we have heard before is that uh, the the golds, as you referenced, were were like, you know, very popular. Do you think that at the time people were aware of what they were getting or do you think like they kind of took it a bit for granted? <laughs> my ilk, my, my, my crowd, we knew. And when you stumbled upon the good shit, when there was all that dirt weed going around, uh, we would pool our resources and buy a quantity, try and get enough to get a pound, um, get a much more reasonable deal. I think it was like $250 a pound. Uh, it used to be, geez, $90 a kilo uh, in bricks. Um, but generally, I think I was paying about 200 to $300 per pound <clears throat> for, for the top shelf stuff, whereas the more commercial things were probably 150 a pound. Um, so yeah, we would uh, pool our resources and buy the good shit and then have it for a while, sell however much we knew about it um, for sure. I think it's like wine, <clears throat> right? Uh, good wine. You, even you don't have to be a, a connoisseur, a wine expert to just know what you like. And generally speaking, when people are introduced to what is classified as good wine, they tend to smack their lips and go, hmm, oh, that's wonderful. 
Um, and it's, it's very similar with herb. Yeah, yeah. You just kind of gravitate towards what you like. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the flavor. It's then the accompanying feeling that goes with it. Whereas yeah. wine generally tends to have, you know, you drink enough of it, the same feeling. <laughs> so, Old Time Moonshine, this is kind of an indica-dominant strain you released in the past, which didn't really have any apparent relationships to the Blue family. And the thing which strikes my interest about this is, you know, obviously not really related to a lot of other stocks. So, the first thing I started to wonder is, how many of these types of projects or, you know, kind of strains do you have in your library where they are actually just you know kind of unrelated that's a good question um the old time moonshine was part of what went on up in canada in 2004 around then um uh someone with a nice big house set up uh 600 plants was able to dedicate the space to do an r&d and then a seed run uh, from that R&D, uh, it was the biggest that I got to, you know, witness firsthand of, of my my personal stock being grown out. And these were things that presented themselves. Uh, Old Time Moonshine was one of them that was in, I think, a, a Blue Moonshine designated uh, stock. I... Can't, I don't really wasn't that in, in, involved. I mean, I, I put my hands on it, saw it, smoked it, um, but I, it wasn't that personally involved. Um, I'm trying to recall if she was strictly green, if she had the purples in her or not. Uh, I do know that in the final analysis, again, my primary concern was the smoke and how did things smoke. And in that capacity, it passed the muster to be of the potency to qualify for a moonshine. Uh, they actually came up with the name Old Time Moonshine, uh, assigned that to it. There was only one plant, all right? It was a big plant uh, that went to seed, uh, and I think there were about 1,600 seeds on that, and this was back when seeds were in 10 packs. So it was only about 160 packs of those seeds. <clears throat> and like any release, you know, there's an initial sale because people are interested and you got to wait for smoke reports and, and things to come in for sales to pick up after that initial. Well, the old time moonshine just kind of moved along, you know, as we sold our little bit. Over time then, uh, I think High Times did a, a piece on it and Jason King uh, did something on it that really set the hype again. There was a surge in buying of those seeds, and they sold out. All right, um, so there were no more of them, and that kind of adds to the hype in a big way. Um, now, again, this was mid late two thousands. Uh, right after the Mark Emery bust, in and around the time of the Heaven Stairway bust, people were on edge. People were looking to, you know, seed hoarding was a, a big phenomenon right then. And someone who had bought two packs of those old-time moonshine put them on one of the auction boards that was left, probably on Gypsy Nirvana's site at that time, I forget where, uh, on an auction, and they got $1,000 a pack. Uh, yeah, on a 10-seed pack. And that then, I think, just fueled the hype a whole bunch more. Um, 
so from my perspective, you know, that that's what happened with Old Time Moonshine. Now, uh, I'm re-releasing that. I passed some of that stock on again to uh, both my son and some people in Michigan uh, growing that out now. And great success. They're loving it. Um, it's passing the muster. So we might see that again. But in, in terms, that's kind of, that's what happened with it. And that's how hype works. Yeah, no, I get that. And so there's this kind of interesting prevailing mindset in the community whereby if someone stops offering a strain, not because, you know, they think it's bad and it shouldn't be offered, but for whatever reason, they're no longer offering it. Generally speaking, if someone else begins to offer it, it's kind of considered okay. How do you feel about the fact that Mosca does that with the old-time moonshine? It's... It should be the way it is for tomatoes. All right, whatever laws there are for tomatoes and tomato seeds, what burpee goes through. And I mean, from my perspective, you look at it like this. So use tomatoes as an analogy. I go into um, public domain stock and I work just heritage strains and I come up with a tomato that is small it's blue, and it has a taste like a blueberry, and they're blueberry tomatoes. And I market them as both blueberry tomatoes, you know, leasing that rights to whomever, or I sell seeds of blueberry tomatoes. Now, if I lease that out to Burpee or whomever, and they're selling blueberry tomatoes, can, you know, and they're, they're doing it for a while, and either for whatever reasons, crop failure uh, supply is much higher than demand. They cannot supply the market for a given period of time for whatever reason. Does that give the general public the right to buy a pack of blueberry tomato seeds and then offer them on the market? Legally, no, from my understanding. And, you know, all I care about is exactly whatever the hell it is for tomatoes. Well, let's do that for herbs. And that's something for the lawyers to work out. For me, it's a it's an incidental. It's it's a distraction, really. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I I come from this kind of open source place where I, I do believe that even given intellectual property rights, that all intellectual property is is public domain. Once it's published, once it's out there. Uh, and the analogy I like to use is like it's a big pond, right? And in that pond are these fish, and that fish is the information. Uh, you could use Einstein, all right? Einstein made the right fishing tackle, the right gear, and he caught E equals MC squared. Now, Einstein caught it, all right? But he gave it to the world, and here you go. Here's E equals MC squared. I think in fairness that the way it would go forward is that fine everyone can take e equals mc squared and run with it but if you start making money off of it you owe something to einstein right or back to the pond one or the other you know as long as that cycle is completed hey this is completely sustainable right but when people then you know take um claim rights 
to things, then that gets murky. And then litigation gets complicated and, and it becomes a serious waste of time, energy, and money. Um, you know. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I get you. It brings up this interesting concept because there's currently this topic in the community of, you know, what level of uh, onus is there on people to reach out and maybe ask for permission before using a strain in a cross? And that's that's kind of, to me, it's a bit of a no-brainer, especially if, if you're crossing two different strains. I feel like it gets very confusing when, yeah, when you say you're doing an F2 of someone's work. And that's why I prefaced it with that initial bit because, like, the thing I notice is, for example, Tom Hill, he's not around anymore and there are a lot of people who F2 his lines. And if he was around, that would be, like, such a no-no. But the fact he's not around, people almost view it as like you're doing a community service. So I, I just, I'm, I'm so intrigued by how, you know, the mindset around this all works because it's like under just these minor little tweaks in the situation, there's just like a, a total flip on whether people support the concept or not. And then in your situation, yeah, like you're still around. So it kind of raises the question of, did you, did you not, did you stop releasing it because maybe you didn't want it out there? Things like that are what I think about it, at least. <laughs> what, old time moonshine? No, like I said, there was yeah, one yeah. plant. There were 1,600 <laughs> seeds, 160 packs, which were enough to, to make that, that hype happen. But to finish up on the, on the pond and the fish analogy, the pond and the fish belong to everybody. Right, even though Einstein caught E equals MC squared with his fishing thing, it still belongs to everybody. And the only time it gets murky, the only thing that needs to be regulated, and I think this this is a, a big picture thing legally. To me, the most dangerous substance on the face of the earth that needs to be regulated is money. Period. And once we get a grip on that, I think you know society will do fine. But we're not controlling money and we're allowing that concept of the golden rule being that those with the gold make the rules <clears throat> and historically that's never worked out well and it, it won't this time either and it, it's, it's unfortunate that the levels of suffering you know that can happen as a result of that but again the pond the fish belong to everybody but you have to give credit to whomever wrestled out that fish from the pond in the first place and and take care of that and things work themselves out yeah so just as a quick little wrap up was the grape crush of kind of a similar nature to the old time moonshine where it was kind of something you offered for a bit and now it's kind of gone or was there a little bit of a different backstory on that one um, it was a, a blueberry line, blueberry leaning, but had a much more grape flavor and was very productive, just 15, 20, sometimes 25% more uh, on the plant with the same amount of quality. Um, we are, it is re-released right now in a, what we call a throwback form where we've taken a bunch of the grape crush seeds, grown them out, done a proper selection for the mother, and then just use the F4 blueberry dad who's yeah, he's got merit all the way around um and those seeds are doing the exact same thing in terms of production and the grape flavor so they are around um i don't know if my son is still continuing them 
uh, he, he's got a lot on his plate right now. And once again, it's space and time. I need to uh, have a meeting with him here soon to see what he does have and doesn't have. Um, anything I have released can be released again. Uh, it will be seen again at some point in time. Fantastic. So, I mean, just as a little curiosity point, I this could be a silly question. Excuse me if it is. Were you the creator of Skywalker? Or did they did Dutch Passion do that just with your work? They just did that with my work, and that was kind of after the fact, after I had left uh, being there. I never got anything for that one. Um, yeah, that was just a little one I needed to slot in. I didn't know where to slot that one. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad you did, because that's one of those that few people really know about, and that that was my genetics, the things that I'd left... Um, up up with Dutch Passion. I don't know if he worked any other genetics in with that, but I do know that mine were uh, uh, responsible, at least in the initial um, description of them. Yeah, I, I was able to try some in the States, and it was incredible quality. And, and of all I can assume, I think that this particular cutting was kind of tapping more into kind of the flow side of things because... It just everything people have ever told me about flow, it's just what this... And it was given to me as purple Skywalker. And I was like, what do you mean purple? Like, it just happens to be purple. And they're like, no, nah, this cut, it's like... And it looked kind of like that stacked calyx foxtail photo of flow. So, yeah, again, I, I yeah, I love that one. So, I was always curious. But um, something I wanted to ask you, though, is given your work is so... Um, extensively worked generation wise how do you feel about the fact that you know a lot of the current breeders are releasing f1s these days do you you know do you have any opinions on that or where do you sit um again it's it's not something i really have the time uh more energy to focus on I, I my only contact with what other people are doing in the industries is when I uh, attend shows and I happen to walk around and, and notice. I know that right now there is a huge um, surge of new genetics companies. Um, a lot of them seem to be banding together, you know, sharing booth space and and kind of distribution in in that way. Um, a lot though they 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 it's genetics companies. I mean, basically, just pick up any recent issue of High Times and flip through who has the most full page ads. Kind of gives you an indication of who's you know spending money on what. That also and um, booth spaces at at these events. Uh, some of those booths are hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, worth of space and and people and um but there there's your indicator you know just follow the money yeah okay and so do you feel it's possible to remain relevant within the scene without engaging strongly in you know advertising and social media and stuff because i think that for the most part you could look at your own brand and say there's a little bit of that going on where, you know, it's still doing very well, yet you're not, you know, like one of these people who's posting up stuff every day and trying to like everyone's comments and stuff. Yeah, I and I'm not, I mean, this whole social media phenomenon, it's a new thing. And it kind of boggles my mind. I think the the, the platforms themselves don't worry me so much as how quickly people embrace this as normal um and it's not it's only just begun 
So again, these it remains to be seen. I think it, it's far too early to tell. I think now, right now, in this in this day and age and in this market, yes, in the states especially, I would imagine so in Europe, Canada, probably Australia too, <clears throat> to be um, very active in in these um, on these platforms. Um, it's uh, for me again. It's it's an incidental. Um, I need to focus on finding those things that make me feel good when I smoke them. And so in that capacity, I've got my work cut out for me. Um, but for other people, yeah, I, I, I see it all the time. The competition is fierce. It really is. And if it were fair, I mean, if people played fair, that'd be one thing. But people don't. And it's been going on for, going on for a long time where people use um, certain bulletin boards or whatever to tout one brand and, you know, uh, praise another um, supposedly in, in this completely sincere way, but that's not the case. It, it's all marketing strategies and things. It was the same when I was a kid growing up was TV and commercials, and we had to learn, you know, oh, God, yes, this is how they're trying to affect us. And hopefully some of us will see through it and learn from it and, and you know, be able to progress beyond. I'm, I'm hoping at some point, someday, just the merit of the herb itself is going to be what what guides its future. Uh, the, the, the good smoke, you know, and that was that was it in the brotherhood days. Right, I mean, when it was the good smoke demand, supply and demand, and people knowing what they like and and wanting what they like, and seeking it. Yeah, for sure. So something I did want to ask you is, what was it that caused you to go back to the drawing board and to rework the blueberry sativa line and to ultimately kind of derive the vanilluna and the cocoa kush from it? Oh, sure. Um, the blueberry sativa, or what came to be known as blue satellite, that was work I did with Breeder Steve. And uh, Breeder Steve was another Canadian, originally, who then went to Europe, uh, first to Switzerland. Um, had quite a few successes there, but had a nasty habit of burning his bridges and uh, ended up leaving Switzerland um, and going to Spain and kind of doing the same thing there, accomplishing a lot, uh, quite a bit. Um, I went over there, took, took genetics with me, and, and that's where we came up with, with those. Um, at that point in time, it was my, my next, blueberry was out, flow was out, this is what has to be next, this blueberry sativa. <clears throat> Once that was out, then, you know, um, I came back. I was working on my own. Things really didn't work out up in Canada. Uh, so that was like 05, 06 that I did the Coco Cushion Vanaluna um, from similar lines. Um, matter of, well, exactly the same lines as um, the Blue Satellite. Interesting. And so do you think that the Vanaluna has kind of gone on to get its own cult following in the way that flow almost has because i find the variegation is undeniably something which just really draws people to her 
Yeah, I, I would uh, have to agree. It's another one of my favorites, actually, probably more so than Blueberry. And it I describe as being comfortable. It's just playing comfortable. It makes you comfortable. So for, again, pain management, it was it was wonderful in that capacity, very clear-headed. Um, Coco Kush, the same thing, although Coco Kush had a little bit more of a wild ride to it. I called it a little bit more like a roller coaster. Um, uh, so... Uh, what was the question in relation to that Vanna Luna and Coco Kush? Do you, do you, oh, well, basically, I was just wondering, do you find that um, there is a bit of a cult following for Vanna Luna? Oh, I would hope so. <laughs> I would hope so. Uh, same with, you know, Flo. It took a long time. I was sitting there going, God, I really wish Flo. Well, Flo, again, uh, Breeder Steve. Breeder Steve recognized Flo in 1996. It won the Cannabis Cup in Europe for Cannabis Culture magazine because Breeder Steve was sent over there to cover the Cannabis Cup. He sampled all the varieties that were entered. And at the time, I had been bringing my seed, getting my seed there in the bud because to me that was the way to ensure, number one, authenticity. It's in vacuum sealed in bud. And then number two, I have smoke. And seeded smoke, is it's got a special characteristic to it. Um, and uh, it was some of that seeded flow that when Breeder Steve was there, we broke it out, rolled up some joints. He looks at me, he says, this is the best thing I've smoked here. Uh, so yeah, he recognized it in 1996, but for anything connoisseur, you know, it, it takes a while, I think, for, for, for it to catch on, even if it's supposed to, because I don't know, some things get too popular and it sort of waters them down sometimes too. Yeah, no, I agree. Last little question about the Vanna Luna and the leaf variegation I wanted to ask you is, had you ever noticed anything about that? And it, did, it, did it like ever relate to the plant? Because the reason I ask is two reasons. One, I've bred a plant which is kind of near and dear to my heart and it does it. And I haven't really noticed too much effect except for like, you know, kind of an aesthetic appeal, which I think a lot of people like. But on the other end of the spectrum, a really commonly highly regarded cut within the States, the Chemdog D, it does variegation and people uh, kind of view it as like a negative thing. And so I'm wondering, where do you sit? Do you, do you think it's purely aesthetic or does it play a role? Um, well, I think I know where it comes from. <coughs> and it comes from uh, mainly the tie, uh, both the chocolate tie and the highland tie, which in my opinion were subjected at some time in their lineage to what is called a colchicine regimen. Um, colchicine is a toxic substance. It's a medicine used to treat gout. Um, it is also, um, oh, what do you call it when you mix up genetics? It's a modulator, I believe. Yep. And, uh, the theory goes, you take many seeds, um, soak them in colchicine. Only a few of them will sprout and they'll be wretchedly deformed. You breed further with them. They're supposed to be toxic, actually, a few generations out, but very specific uh, phenotypic expressions can be isolated. They said, well, uh, seedless watermelons, a uh, few other things came from uh, colchicine uh, mutagenic um, regimen. And uh, evidence is the variegation in the leaf, the twisted curling, and also albino 
patching and the albino patching is very geometric. Um, it, it happens in specific places, and then if you count things out, number of leaflets, what side of the leaf, you will see the identical patterns on opposite sides of the plant. Um, and it was uh, it may have been what made the tie the tie huh. as well. Yeah, wow, okay. So, back to kind of one of the strains which no longer being offered, the trueberry, and that's what combines the indica and the sativa sides of the blueberry. A lot of people, just when looking at that one, they might think that that would be kind of the masterpiece for you. Do you view it like that? Do you view it as kind of the ultimate expression of blueberry or it's just more of like a cool merging of the indica and the sativa lines? Yeah. Uh, more on the sativa side. You're talking about the true blueberry. Yes, sorry. Yeah, and that was that was another one of the um, Canadian offerings, and it was a little more sour um, on the uh, you know lemony, citrus, piney side, uh, more uh, spear shaped to the buds, whereas the domestic uh, U.S. blueberry is the stretch indica where you have the nice golf ball bud formations um, placed along long internodes uh, and, and a bit sweeter. Um, but, you know, again, they both, they both have their merit. Um, and there, there was a limited offering of those as well, and now they're out floating around uh, doing their thing. Probably will re-release that in some kind of a throwback offering um, again, I'm, I'm just looking forward to in the future being able to go back into my library without being limited so much by space and time where I can grow out at least several hundred plants at a time again and <clears throat> search for these various expressions, uh, among others. There have been things that I've lost that I want to go back and find. I have notes where they are, cherry in particular, very, very distinct cherry. Yeah, okay. I mean, I don't think anyone has ever mentioned cherry as a, you know, one of the possible variations from your work. So that's, I think that'll generate a lot of interest. Yeah. Uh, the woods as well, cedar in particular, incense type things um, <clears throat> have merit to me. Yeah. Okay. So um, one thing I wanted to ask about was Velvet Rush. Is this just essentially like, well, on paper, it looks like it's just the Highland Thai Afghani. It, how does it differ to that? And one of the things it says online about it is that it's it's quite hard to grow. Why? Where does that comment kind of come from? Now, Velvet Rush, are you talking about Blue Velvet? Well, it's just listed purely as Velvet Rush online. It says it's just a, like a, an unknown F generation of the Highland Thai Afghani. That could be totally incorrect, though. Yeah, no, it's not, and I don't think it's something that, that I offer. <laughs> so it might be somebody else's. Yeah, someone's doing something with that. There you go. So I did have, <clears throat> I did have a blue velvet. Okay. And you were you were mentioning the foxtail. Is that the one in the book where there are uh, leaves like coming out and it's long yeah. curled thing? Yeah. It was that was mislabeled as flow. That was actually blue velvet. Oh. So you know. There you go. <laughs> I also, you're, you're probably aware of this. I think that photo is one of the most widely plagiarized photo. Like I see that photo on so many strains, most notably on, you know, random huh. European websites and stuff. But, Int interesting. Yeah, it's a good one. I've seen that one 
been labelled as uh, Dr. Grinspoon, you know, like that iconic uh, Calyx stacking Dr. Grinspoon photo. Anyway, so yeah, interesting one. One thing I noticed is whenever I'm talking to someone about, you know, DJ Short's work, I know how they're legit because they'll say something like, yeah, do you know about Toe Jam or Red-Eyed Bride? And I'll be like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. Can you give us a little bit of info on those ones and the whole collaboration oh, process? Yeah, Chimera. Uh, again, that was when I was up in uh, Vancouver, uh, mid-2004, 2005, and he was establishing his presence in the community as well um, and doing his thing, uh, a lot like Breeder Steve, but he is more uh, scientific disciplined uh, you know focused in that way i think he has a degree in in genetics um up there doing his thing still i haven't spoken with these people been in contact in a long time since since then actually wow and so those projects were they just kind of you know whatever few or did you find anything you liked out of them um again i have so many things that the grow we did, it was 600 plants, all right, um, I forget, 18, 22,000 watts, something like that, old school HIDs. Um, so there was a lot to look at. We had, I think, 12 resins males, all from this one blueberry line when we, we picked the, the male. The B, I forget his number. There was a B133, and uh, there's probably people online that know better than me right now because that's legend and is going around. I, I actually have copies of those seeds as well. Um, uh, and it was harried. <clears throat> you know, there was a lot going on. So I was pretty much overwhelmed with doing my own things, I was able to see other people's things, but uh, I don't have enough real authority to, to comment um, one way or another. Yeah. No, I get you. What's interesting is when you mentioned that uh, B133, I'm just looking through the fan submitted questions. Someone actually submitted that exact question. It's like, can you tell us more about the blueberry B133 mail? Yeah, I know uh, Chimera, um, I, was it that one or there was another male? It was a B-something male. And he selfed the male, um, turned the male female. It was another process and made a bunch of those seeds. I have some of those as well. Um, yeah, Chimera is very focused. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what, what he's up to these days. I wish him well. Um, I know he had some some family issues when when I was leaving there, and and he was dealing with that a lot. But I, I'm pretty sure he still has a, a pretty good presence um, in the community. I would hope, anyhow. If not, check him out. Yeah, for sure. Do you feel responsible for having converted a good proportion of the community to the eleven thirteen light <laughs> cycle? Because I think you should. I don't- Oh, wow. I don't know. How, how much of the community is flipped? Anyone who's switched on, I find, is doing it. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and in, in all, again, honesty, that came to me from an old-timer, uh, mid-'80s, um, guy named Sonny Becker. He passed away of cancer, I think, in '86. He was this old biker guy that made lights. I bought my first lights from him. It was a company called AgriLite out of uh, Junction City, Oregon. 
And it was there at a, uh, with him, and he goes, oh, make, make your lights near nighttime a little bit longer than your daytime. I'm telling you, it's the thing to do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Sonny, it was, uh, they, they, these, these guys, you know, they knew their shit. They were um, wrapping their own ballasts. All right. I mean, like getting wow. copper wire and they yeah. knew you go so many loops this way, so many loops that way. You hook it to this wire onto this little bulb thing, put it with this, this little capacitor and thingy on there and boom, you got light. Um, but he, yeah, he was the one that, that passed it on to me and I had done it ever since. It made perfect sense. Um, plants take in nourishment during the day, which is light primarily, and they, they put it on at night. So it can add to production. Um, the main thing is uh, phenotypic reaction. You will see uh, phenotypes that you do not see on the 1212 on certain strains, especially a lot of mine. Uh, things will present themselves that don't present themselves on a 1212. Yeah, I've I've certainly found that um, you get like a a more kind of flavorful and potent expression. It's it's so weird, but yeah, I really do notice yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So something I wanted to run by because we haven't touched on it yet. What type of grow style do you like to use? Like, are you organic? Are you bottled nutrients? Yeah. How do you do it? No, organic soil with as few nutrients as possible. Um, right now, the mix I like it comes out of Eugene, down to earth. Um, their organic cocoa choir blend is is really nice. There's a company doing worm castings, Wonder Worm, out of British Columbia that has organic worm castings. Very pure, very nice. Um, fortify the soil. Um, I had some people that were working. I was going to do some branding thing for an organic soil they were doing that was water only, uh, complete water only soil. And um, uh, that they're, they're waiting for certification. They're up in Seattle. Um, and I need to test it myself. I haven't yet. Um, but other than that, yeah, just fortifying a soil, uh, plus outdoor, I prefer outdoor over indoor. Definitely. It's such a waste, you know, just such a waste. Um, I forget what it was, 800 pounds of coal to make one pound of pot in terms of electricity how accurate that is you know i don't know but it's been bandied about a lot um any any uh, when you, you've got the big highlight in the sky um places like southern nevada especially california um <clears throat> just the opportunities there michigan where you have incredible soil michigan has really unique soil composites in places that make unique cherries and apples and i know that the herb you know can find its sweet spots there as well um sweet spots outdoors so yep our organic soil all the way if you're going to do uh hydro um aquaponics that is uh organic uh, hydroponics is the way to go flavors just just great all the way around so that's my preference for sure and then do you find that that's purely a preference thing or do you find that kind of like the medicinal properties and the more kind of complex and nuanced parts are, are more pronounced in organic well i haven't done it any other way so i don't have the comparison to make i would just it just makes common sense you know yeah 
those, those things you're putting in the plant, the fiber of that plant, if you're smoking it in, in terms of a whole plant in a joint or a bowl, um, you're consuming those things in your lungs, through your lungs, all right? Nobody studies that. FDA doesn't study smoking fertilizers. The eating, yeah, but eating is a, is a completely different uh, process. So where are the guinea pigs? So far, so good, though. I, I think the cannabis acts enough as a protectant that <laughs> whatever nasty things ends up in there, uh, it kind of gets compensated for somehow by the cannabinoids. Yeah. So when you're at events, you know, the cups and whatnot, I'm sure plenty of people come up and maybe they want to show you some of your work. They've grown out. How often is it that you'll smoke something of that and you're really kind of blown away? It, it happens. It does. Um, and I do sample everything people give me. Um, I think the best compliment would be what I return to. If I go to something a second or third time and it's like, okay, yeah, uh, that, that's got my interest. I will say this, that what I have done with uh, these samples people give me is I've been saving them. And I had been collecting them for about 10 years and I had, I don't know, four or five pounds. And I knew a processor, somebody I really liked his, his method. It was butane, but he was very, very on his game. And I say, here, do do something with this. And he made a shatter out of that. Uh, and he named it. And I thought it was very appropriate. He called it the people's choice because it was everybody's stuff in there. So now, when as people give me stuff, I let people know, I go, hey, this is going to go in the next batch of the people's choice. You know, we're about six years away from it, I think, right now. But um, when it, And it was amazing. It was some of the best stuff I had smoked in in quite a while, uh, and it's it's gone. Unfortunately, I have little. I have some of it stuck to the paper, you know, for one of those. Oh, I need to visit this again one more time. <laughs> but yeah, the, the the people's choice. It was dark. It smelled like top shelf Moroccan hash, and had that flavor too. That kind of sandalwood flavor to it um very pleasant very pleasant that's a good story i like that one there you go now now everyone knows what they're contributing to so um this was a little personal one i wanted to ask you i grew out a pack of blueberry and i found that the the keeper so to speak from that packet it was kind of almost a bit skunky you might it might sound weird right it was a bit skunky after smoking a lot of it I had this kind of epiphany. It clicked on me. It was like the blueberry profile to me is like skunk, like a cheesy skunk with an extra sweet component on the top. It's almost if you broke blueberry down into say like a a top end, a middle and a bottom, the cheesy skunk is the bottom two, but it's missing the top. Have you ever noticed anything like that? Like, I mean, it's probably just a really weird question to ask, but it just blew my mind. And I was just like, wow. Like, because I, I, at first I was like, how did I get this weird kind of skunky pheno? But it makes perfect sense. And I, and I, you know, I adore it. Yeah, yeah. No, it does. And, and those things present themselves. I refer to it as musky. Mm. It, it, for, for what, what I get is yeah. the skunk. Like skunk a has it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's loamy, almost kind of loamy. 
And the other uh, side of that, when it doesn't quite get to blueberry, is anise or licorice. Um, and if you can get that licorice nice and sweet, the, the three-day dark before the, the chop helps a lot with those particular phenotypes. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's kind of what I look for, but the sweet, getting that sweet in there is important. Yeah. Okay. And so one thing I wanted to run by you basically was, I don't know if this is true. So you might, you know, you might be able to set the record straight, but basically I was reading, uh, some kind of history blurb from Vic High, the breeder from uh, British Columbia Seed Organization Association, I believe. Um, you know, really famous breeder, sadly passed away not too long ago. But in one of his strains, there's some blueberry genetics in there and it has this little note. It says, oh, please note, our blueberry derives from different origins to DJ Shorts. And it made me think, are you aware of any blueberry that's derived from anything other than your work? Like someone who's just happened to cross A and B and they're like, oh, I got this really blueberry type of thing. Like, cause I'm not aware of anything like that. Well, no, not specifically, but how many things are floating around out there through how many hands, you know, that can claim credit that can appear to be something unique. Phylos is where to look for that. You know, what's what's related to what? And some of the initial findings from years ago when they did their uh, first runs was that 80 to 85% of every hybrid out there had some marker of what I submitted um, in, an, in an inherited sense. So... Yeah, do you, do you think that's accurate? Because that, I mean, like, that does seem like a little high, to be honest. It wouldn't surprise me <clears throat> for a number of reasons. Um, it wasn't, I mean, I, I, I entered the seed market in the mid-90s, but you got to remember I was set doing clones out to the public since 79, and I know a lot mm. of those went to Northern California, Southern Oregon, um, all over the place. Um, the seeds, I was giving seeds. I was at the time supplementing by dealing whatever I had, uh, had a lot of foreign student, um, clientele who I would, you know, Oh, Hey, can you give me some seeds? Yeah, sure. Here, fine, whatever. Or I would be doing R and D work and there would be some seeds and whatever I was working with at the time that got passed on to other people would say, oh, by the way, I sent that to my uncle in Morocco or Australia. They went to Japan. I made a list one time. It was almost 60 countries. Wow. Yeah. So, no, it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, okay. That's, that's a good answer. So, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you was, I, I have a feeling you would have to be one of the most ripped off slash, you know, replicated breeders out there is that do you view that as a compliment or is it more of like a challenge because i think for a long time a lot of people had issues getting you know quote unquote your seeds from seed banks and then only to find out that like the reality is they probably weren't your seeds yeah you just gave me a new term um complimentary challenge yeah <laughs> yeah that's it <laughs> um yeah uh I like to, you know, cap that off with this and just say, hey, the best is yet to come. 
All right. Let's let's focus on the future. Let's move forward. Um, I just need my space, my time, and to be left alone, and I'll do just fine. And I'm looking forward to sharing that with whomever uh, appreciates it. So, Fantastic. So, I think we might jump into some of the fan-submitted questions. We've got a good bunch here. We'll... Um We'll scroll down to one of the ones I wanted to ask first. Our good friend Bodhi wanted to know if you could talk a little more about uh, your experience and opinions on using psychedelics as a tool to assist with breeding. Uh, yeah, no, it's just a <clears throat> general life rule, you know, for me. Yeah, <clears throat> people, there's a, the concept of altering consciousness, first of all, which is what makes the, the, our detractors nervous. That's what makes them uptight, that <clears throat> we alter our consciousness <clears throat> and somehow yet, you know, have control over it. Um, it's difficult for some people to, to grasp. A at any rate, utilizing and for me uh, the the concept of an altered consciousness gives me what i like to refer to as a stereoscopic view of reality i have my baseline state how i perceive life anything challenge or obstacle any decision i have to make and then i have my altered state where i can consider the same things and you can bounce back and forth between the two and kind of get a little bit broader of a sense of, you know, at least what opportunities uh, exist. Um, so utilizing it as a tool uh, in that regard, it, it opens sensitivity, all right? So it puts me more in a place of where, say, someone in a schizophrenic state maybe or in any state of disease or distress um, and how, how am I reacting to that when I consume this herb? Does it help the situation or does it, you know, uh, impede, make it a little worse? Uh, make note of that <clears throat> because the herbs that generally tend to calm in a psychedelic uh, situation tend to bring that in, in, uh, baseline or non-psychedelic state, but cannabis is a mild psychedelic in and of itself so and so what are some of your preferred psychedelics oh any you know all the indole range providing they're pure yeah. all right P pure um for fungal i uh, like things that are naturally collected uh, if not, then naturally grown by sincere people, um, and yeah, they all work. <laughs> yeah, great. So, um, one of the questions is, what were some of the original flavors, smells, and structure of the ties that you're working with? Obviously, you touched on this a little before, but I think they're most interested in the flavors. Like, what were the different flavor expressions you were you getting? In the land race tie, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the smell of the flower was just juicy fruit, old school tutti frutti, oh. juicy fruit gum, sweet as can be, <clears throat> and yet with that 
tropical sharpness uh, to it. In the smoke, it had the fruitiness, kind of more of the mango, so I would assume myrcene uh, would have been in there. Uh, piney, sweet cedars, more woody um, in, the, in the smoke. But the, it was just juicy fruit gum. Very difficult to manicure. I kind of had to just leave the bract leaves on and run them up the stem and sort of squish them into a bag and hope that they, I think they were more fermenting than curing, but oh, that finished product was pretty wonderful. Uh, and it had no ceiling. Ooh, that stuff was dangerous. Yeah. I'm really just so incredibly grateful to have been able to try some Highland tie that Bodhi grew out. Um, and that has got to be some of, the absolute best herb I've ever had in my life. It was easily the standout herb of the last trip I did to the States. And I was trying to describe it to a friend and I was just like, it's like, you know, you're at a party and everyone's having a great time. It just feels like it felt so good. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting stuff and he's uh, very different to the super racy tie, but yeah. Interesting. Right. And you asked actually about the land race, and I just asked, answered about the P1s I grew from the land race. The land race tie, the stick or the untied, that stuff was, again, just so unique. Um, some of it, the curing process on the stick involved fermenting, which is a process that's used with tobacco. Um, and it's interesting. It involves water soaking and then pressure and a very specific mold or yeast to the host plant has to be present and nothing else. And, and um, it, it, was like, it was like Thai food, all right? Sweet, savory. Um, it, it was just unique. It was not, you know, the, the, what I grew from it was close in a domestic sense, but nothing like what came from Thailand. Yeah. Uh, that stuff was just amazing. Uh, tropical fruit, Hawaiian punch, only with you know a bit of a fermentation to it. Um, it yeah. was nice. Yeah, wow, that that sounds great. It's um. Bringing, bringing some memories, I had a conversation with an old-timer I met not long ago and, and he lives uh, in Australia and he tries to grow those ties you talk about and he was talking about how he's trying to replicate that terroir and you know trying to get it as close to Thailand as possible and he said, just as a little side note, the biggest impactful thing he found was he put um, heating mats under his pots because he found that rooting the heat ball to like 25 degrees, like basically he said it would never really get colder than that in Thailand or where the seed stock he was growing. And he said it made a huge difference phenotypically. And I was like, hmm, that's, that's food for thought. Yeah, yeah. What, what little tricks. I was just reading something on the, on the Thai stick. I don't know if it was in the book Thai stick. Um, that the Thai people would let their babies, the infants, sleep on the bales. <laughs> wow, good, sweet dreams. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, there was a lot of things were not with the Thai. Some of it had opium um, in it, which was just soaked in the water left over from 
cooking out heroin uh, from the opium, and um, that 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 was potent. You did not want to be out drinking and smoke any of that. Yeah, that's. I almost like wish I could have tried some of that, but not at the same time. <laughs> um, so the next question we have is that iconic photo of you in the uh, the sports coat holding the plan outside in your younger days with the long hair. What year was that? 1979. Right, and what plant is that one in your hand? That plant in my hand. Wow, I'm glad you asked that. I wonder if, if you got a picture, you can throw that out there. Um, that is the chocolate tie. Oh. And it is seeded. Um, it was it's the name of that plant at the time was patio door because it was the plant that was right outside my patio door, <laughs> uh, in the ground. It wasn't in a pot, and um, yeah, that's chocolate tie. Wow, that's yeah, that's a real history photo. So it would definitely whack one of those up. Next question, which I think is a great one. Do you remember the first time you ever hit that weed, whether you know whatever bong joint, whatever? And you got that defined blueberry taste. Do you remember that time? Yeah, that would have been doing the F2s. Um, so that would have been 1980 or so. And again, back then, it was it was the kind. It was just this, oh, my, open. It was, it was a, more of a dilator effect than anything constrictive. It was the exact opposite of constrictive. Uh, which is, you know, kind of a, a, a fruit experience. You know, your your body takes it in. It's nourishing. It tastes good. It's it's it just has this appeal. Um, just just overall holistically. Yeah. But yes, I, I not the you know maybe the exact time in and around then. Um, it was such a whirlwind. Uh, what I experienced in Oregon um, at that time, coming from Detroit, just learning uh, pot grew there. Um, you know uh, how easily um, and and how uh, the quality it compared to you know getting the usual dirt weed. Even B grade dirt weed, or stumbling upon some some A grade now and again when you're lucky. Um, but it it was uh, quite the eye opener. Yeah, uh, and so um, new things were constant, just constant. I would have several jars of things. Go, oh my God! It was this is new, and that is new, and and always striving a little better too, you know, making it uh, better here and and picking the next. Oh yeah, you're a little better than your mom, and and going that route. Yeah, striving to do better. Then I like that. So, another really interesting question we got from our friend True Cannibalist is, he says that he read a while ago that you liked, you know, maybe preferentially to kind of smoke buds that had been pollinated because you kind of enjoyed the, the changes that went on within the plant on the biology level. Could you talk to us a little more about that? Like what kind of is it you enjoy about these seeded plants? Like do you find them to be more relaxing or what is it for you? Yeah, relaxing is is a good way. Uh, one, one of the aspects, <clears throat> it's a... Uh, the term I like is broader. It's just a broader experience. 
that plant had that seeded was able to complete its life cycle instead of being stuck before completing its life cycle and then being harvested. And there's just something about that, a maturity to the resins. Um, and historically, all of the great herb that I've, I've mentioned came, you know, they were all hermaphroditic and all at least somewhat seeded. And all of the great hash came from field-run uh, hash or hand-rubbed that was usually hermaphroditic and, and seeded as well. So, <clears throat> plus I've had, you know, I've had to smoke a lot of seeded herb in my day. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, and and the the resins from 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 them as well, and you can you can tell there it's subtle. It's it's not a you know a, a real uh, bold kind of difference, but it, it's subtle and it is my preference. We've touched on a lot of the topics these questions are, so I'm just going to kind of cut to the one bit that's not there. Um, do you have a preferred lighting style? I know you mentioned the CMHs. Is that that's your preferred one for indoor? Um, right now, for having firsthand experience with it, um, I, my son has been working with the LEDs uh, with, to great success, and I'm r reading great things. He, um, he's the company he works with is Next Light <clears throat> out of Ohio, and they're really focusing on dialing in full spectrum lighting. And some of the pictures I've been seeing, people have been bringing to my classes and things. Um, my, my son's been showing me uh, bud sets. The canopy, the buds in the canopy are um, albino. They, the plant just ceases producing so much chlorophyll because it's, it's saturated with light. Um, production is there. The terpene quantity and quality is is very high because they tend not to dissipate so much with these cooler lights um <clears throat> so yeah the um uh, leds the high-end leds are are proving their merit and worth yeah fantastic i'm i'm looking at getting some myself so this next question is an interesting one. I, I kind of like the angle of it. Have you ever tried any of what would largely be considered hype strains like smoked it and you thought to yourself, I don't mind that? Well, I always try to be as positive as possible, you know. And, and one of the things that people pride themselves on that is kind of a hindrance to me, I think a stumbling block, is potency. <clears throat> so, and and it's not terribly difficult to dial in, and people do do it, and they are proud of it. And so I will, you know, it'll be my first comment if I am past something and I hit it, and it's a little overpowering. I say, well, that certainly is potent, uh, which you know I guess satisfies their ego uh, to some extent. But um, no, <laughs> basically, is the answer to your question. I think I I, I avoid. Uh, it, it's it's hard for me anymore. I, I judge cups now and again, but the only thing I'm judging are like um, resins, you know, live resins, and and uh, solventless and and things like that. Some of the rosin, um, I, I is pretty. 
easy to uh, deal with. You can titrate, just do a little tiny bit and decide I like that or not, and then I don't have to go there. But what I'm trying to avoid are these, you know, God, another two hours out of my life, I'll never get back, like a bad movie. (laughs) You know, so eh, I've had enough of that. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a question I wish I came up with. It's a really good one. Have you noticed any negatives throughout the course of inbreeding your lines in any of them? Not really. Not really. Um, Vigor is still there. Um, considering that, you know, in terms of commercial offerings, I'm working with F4s, um, it's, it's still completely interests me. I, I, and, and there are things, like I said, things I've lost, I need to look for. And I know that when I sprout a certain number of seeds, especially from a batch I haven't sprouted before, I'm going to see something new. Uh, both positive and negative. Sometimes there's negative in there too. <laughs> so, I mean, well, that raises a good question. Do you frequently find there's a few duds in each project? Or, you know, like, is oh, that, yeah. Or is yes. It like, and how often do yes, you yes. completely shelve something? Most of the time. Yes, the, the keepers are, you know, um, a small percentage really when when doing R&D um certain lines like well his happy pussy line presented a lot of stellar females um I sent some to my son to find a male I gave him seven seeds and he ended up with seven females <laughs> uh, which alright so that, that went that way um but um I think you almost referenced earlier on where you know, you'd, you'd be looking at F8, F10 before you'd really be inbreeding hard, right? Exactly, exactly. And and uh, I can go to any level, you know. If I get bored, I can sprout an F3 yeah. and, and and look there and, and see. Because then there's branches, other branches can come off of that. Um, whereas when I'm working with F4s, it's it's kind of more set. Things are more um, defined. Yeah. So, would you ever consider working any feminized gear? Like, you know, making your own feminized lines? I thought about it with Flo simply because she's never sported one male flower in all the 27 years she's been alive. Stressed many times near death and never shown male flower. And I let my son, I said, here, why don't you give it a whirl? And he got male flowers present, I think some pollen, but we did not get seed. And the reason for that project was mainly just for preservation. Um, but <clears throat> no, again, I, I don't have time. Yeah. I just, uh, I have too many other things. Forward filial crosses are going to keep me busy and everybody happy. <clears throat> so I'll let other people do that. So this one, I'm not sure you know, really the background on it, but it says, uh, is it true that there was an original blueberry and it was lost? Not uh, lost per se. Again, I gave you the story about the fellow that showed up. uh, So, yeah, it was out of my hands, but many, geez, thousands of those were sent out to many people. Um, 
so it's it's I'm pretty sure it's still out there. I could come up with it again as well. Um, uh, just waiting for, like I said, space and time. Space and time. So, do you ever smoke males? And is it true that you once smoked males while on acid? It's a bit of a ridiculous question. So smoked what? <laughs> smoked like male pollen sacs. Oh, male, male, yeah. male, male. Yes. Um, well, back in days of desperation... I remember trying stems once. I remember trying pollen once. It's like smoking hair uh, with no merit, with no benefit. Um, Now, as far as smoking males, to determine, uh, yes, and that's tips. You take the very tips that are are flowering, uh, enough of them to make whatever, uh, used to be in a bowl or a joint. Um, I found the volcano vaporizer uh, worked great for if there are, if there is a terpene presence in that male that you can sense it more more readily with the volcano vaporizer. Yeah, that's a really good tip, actually. So there's been a little bit of like a discussion around males that hermaphrodite i think you were one of the initial people who kind of put a bit of a statement out there saying you didn't mind them i've i've toyed around with it myself and i know other people who have toyed around with it and there's kind of been a bit of mixed results what what's kind of your you know opinion on the subject now that we can get a proper sure i call them backwards males and uh, i think the reason that i have encountered them and, and been able to work with them is because whatever plant it was before I knew its sex, was very interesting looking. It was sporting some fluorescence to it that it was, yeah, okay, you're cool. Uh, it turns out to be a male, and I would think, okay, I'm going to set you aside, see how you do, I'm going to use you as a male. And then after that, like it put out one set or two set of male flowers and went totally female after that. Um that plant also um, turned out to oh, it was sterile. It was completely sterile, and sterile. I hit it with three different males because she was really stellar and terribly difficult to clone. Um, I, I don't think I cloned her. I think I went to regreen her, and I had to let her go because of space and time constraints. Um, but yeah, she was. Uh, Male first, then strictly female. Uh, but I've seen them um, at, at other times. And it's a phenomenon, um, again, I don't know maybe if this is related to the culture scene as well or not, where they put out uh, pre-flowers or their first sex uh, is one and they flip to the other. And I haven't had a problem um, with those, using those as... Uh, well, females for flower, but not for for breeding. Yeah. So one comment I read a lot on the internet, and I wanted to get your opinion on it, was that people seem to think that the kind of current offering of blueberries are like a sweet, uh, you know, like kind of what I think of blueberry, I think. But then they say that the earlier versions was more of like a blueberry muffin type of thing. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that's maybe just a bit of like, you know, reminiscent looking back and thinking it was a little different to what it was? No, I think two phenomenon are at play there. One of which is that pre-98 phenomenon where I had released a quite 
broad variance um, and that someone may have stumbled upon what they referred to as a, a blueberry muffin phenotype. But the other side of it, I think, has to do with uh, additives, fertilizers, various nutrients are altering the flavor of herb light frequencies as well. I'm having my best luck again with the blue range uh, ceramic metal highlights. Um, the LEDs also are bringing out the sweetness and, and a lot more flavor. So I think, you know, one of those two factors or both of them working together have built that um, legend. <laughs> yeah, it's I think a lot of people would go into hybrids trying to create the the fable blueberry muffin terpene profile, which is interesting. No, it's it's there, and and I run across it. I see that phenotype. I know what people are talking about. Um, it was more prompt uh, in the eighties, late eighties, early nineties. Um, again, much different additive uh, available back then. It was I mean, a bit simpler. On the topic of additives, have you ever heard of um, people spraying, you know, blueberry with like the the actual blueberry spray additives? Yeah, you know, and that's it's a bummer. Don't, <laughs> yeah, or you know, juice, blueberry juice, any any colored thing, the roots will take it up and possibly transfer it up to the flowers, but. Yeah, yeah, I just remember this one time I had this banana OG and it was almost too banana to be real. And then in retrospect, I have a feeling that's exactly what happened. <laughs> um, anyway, this is another really good question from the one of our listeners. Uh, have you ever had like a, a mistake or a learning lesson during a breeding project that you've really, you know, taken with you and it was a good experience overall? Um, mistake, well... Yes. Um, when I was shooting for high potency and um, fast flowering, I went three generations. It was increasing with each, but on that third one, I ran into like 75% of the crop. Anyhow, <clears throat> was this thing called, I called no high. <laughs> and it was actually worse than no high. I, I called it grumpy dope because it, it had the opposite effect. It was like anti-pot. Um, and it was uh, terrible stuff. It uh, Unfortunately, I had a funny story. I sold it to a friend of mine. He was a bass player in a reggae band. I didn't test it yet. And I had let it go to him this one evening and it was like 8.30 in the morning. There's a banging on my door. And what is this? What is this? And I was like, oh, God, Walter. And Walter was pissed. Walter never got pissed. And Walter was never up at 8.30 in the morning. I said, what's wrong? He said, what's this shit you sold me? I said, I invited him in. We sat down. I took a bong hit of it. And I said, Jesus, dude. I apologized right away. I said, I'm sorry. Got him something else. We smoked that. It took it right away. But... And uh, another friend of mine, he just, I, I ended up passing it on to him and he did an experiment, kind of a rude experiment at the Oregon Country Fair where he bagged a bunch of that up and then just left it in places and he watched people and he said they did, they started fighting and it was terrible. Um, so I said, okay, be careful and make sure you test everything, you know, to make what you're putting out there. It has to be, you got to know that it performs. That's awesome. <laughs>
so this question, yeah, really intrigued me. He said, uh, I've heard a rumor that only around 20 to 30% of the work, you know, in your library has actually ever seen daylight. Is that true? Uh, somewhere I would say 40 to 60% in that range. Or right. it has seen, has seen. So uh, 60 to 40% hasn't. Wow. So, yeah, you weren't kidding when the best is yet to come. Yeah, yeah. And I released what I've released. I mean, I've been sitting on my thumbs for so long here waiting for this decades now, knowing this time was coming and just kind of going, oh, God, making sure everything is safe and scattered to the four winds and in trustworthy hands and just waiting waiting for the day we'll get it going but realistically it's going to be when we have worldwide importation then you know maybe resurrect some of these genetics back in their sweet spots which has been done there's this great article it's on IC mag it's still on there it was a guy named red rider was the poster and it was johnny blaze which was one of our canadian offerings was the neville's haze hit with that, that b133 blueberry dad up there grown in santa marta colombia at ten thousand feet elevation and it was amazing and it was beautiful and the locals they were posting in the in the grow and smoke reports that the locals were going she's back and they were referring to punta roya uh the purple tip uh, gold pot. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's not just domestically, it's all over the world. And, and uh, again, in, in our area, focus on concentrates and resins and these wonderful terpenes and isolating them and, and breeding for those types of things. But, yeah, when the day comes, we've got worldwide importation. Then people will know, you know, good herb. Yeah. On a, on a on a regular basis. So, do you have any tips for our listeners about how you go about selecting your males? Uh, there's no shortcut, really. You got to pollinate the female, mature the seed, cure it, sprout it, and grow it. Um, to be sure, hollow stems is an indication of uh, you know there's going to be some potency drug cannabis. Same with um, uh, resin content, if he's, if he's got any potency to him whatsoever, he'll more than likely carry that on. And what's his terpene profile? Um, those, those types of things to look for, the stem rub, rubbing the leaves, smelling that. If you have five of them next to each other, which one is the most appealing in that regard? You know, those, those, those basic characteristics, and that's the one I would lean toward in terms of using if, you know, if space is an issue, numbers are an issue, which they are for some people still. Yeah. So what are some of the things which go through your mind when you're thinking about starting a new cross? Do you kind of really plan things out or are you just kind of more experimenting at first? Yeah, it's, it's pretty much experimental. I have a list. I have things uh, kind of on deck that it's going to be one of these um and yeah there's a priority uh kind of set 
to to looking for various various things right now it, it's still in the resurrection stage those things that have been stumbled upon and released and and refinding them and and getting them secured and stable somewhere um and then going on from there yeah so one listener wants to know if you could give us your opinion on where the autoflower trait originates from, especially given it was in, you know, the, the kind. Mm -hmm. I really don't know to tell you the truth. I kind of avoided it in the work I've been doing just simply because it tended to have more hermaphroditic uh, characteristics. And for the market I'm satisfying with seeds, uh, you want low hermaphrodite or, or, or none. It's relatively simple to do. You just two, two, three generations, you don't tolerate it in your parent stock, and it tends to go away. Um, but I'm curious. I, I'm, I am curious now. I, I see a lot of people leaning that way, and I do have memories of using it. So I don't know if that helps or answers. But Yeah, no, that does. That's a good answer. These are our last little quick-fire questions. They're pretty, you know, yes-no type of stuff. So, out of everything you've ever had, what's your favorite strain of all time? Um, hash, Nepalese Temple Ball, right up there with the Kashmiri Charis. In terms of hash, um, in terms of herb, the Highland Oaxacan... and the Highland Thai. Probably, I, I like the Highland Oaxacan a little better... Then the Thai, the Thai had a good potency, but the Oaxacan had a pleasantness about it, as did the Santa Marta, the Colombian gold, the Acapulco golds, all of those uh, frankincense, cedar-leaning uh, gold, <clears throat> South and Central American strains. Those were probably my favorite. Thai was right up there with them. Yeah, perfect. And so what is your least favorite strain, or just the one that's vibed with you least? God, I have no idea. Ruderalis? Hemp? <laughs> oh, speaking of which, driving across country, man, just so you know, I took Interstate 80. There was a lot of feral hemp. All right, we're talking August, early August, and they were big plants, cornfields. It was Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, um, and then into west or eastern Nebraska. And on the sides of the cornfields, along the highway, this was kind of strange. I, I know, you know, I've heard rumor that they're back, but I know that the highway patrol generally was yanking those things out. Um, but there were a lot of them, big plants with big leaves. So if you're traveling Interstate 80 up in that area, be on the lookout for some uh, nice-looking hemp plants. <laughs> That's cool to hear. I, I never thought I'd really see the roadside hemp like the uh, the old seed mags. Yeah, I, I didn't either, but there it was, and I had to keep doing a double take, and it sure enough was big leaf hemp. <laughs> That's cool. So final question for this one. What is your hopes for the future of the cannabis scene? Hey, just, you know, borrowing from the dead and the brotherhood, man, just share the love, you know? That's yeah. that's that's what it's all about. Um, we can heal this planet. We're healing cancer, curing cancer, for God's sake. You, how do you need more serious than that? Seriously? Mm. All right. No, no, no. That's it. We healing. We just here we go. 
We're, 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 we're finally stepping out of these, you know, if there's still people a thousand years from now, they're going to include, they're going to include up to this point in time in the dark ages. We're almost there. It's the dawning of the information age is about to happen. And I think all information, once it becomes apparent and available, will work it out. Will work it out. <laughs> Fantastic. So, did you have any comments or shout-outs you wanted to make before we wrap it up? Uh, no, just uh, hello and thank you to my lovely partner, Don Ann. Cured her cancer with cannabis, her breast cancer. Um, and is now four and a half years cancer-free. We just had the checkup. Um, and just, hey, you know, to the plant. Always for the plant. Keep her, keep her green. Keep her growing. Yeah, fantastic. So thanks again so much for coming on the show and for sharing all the knowledge and history. It's been amazing. Yeah, yeah, likewise, man. Thank you. Very professional. There you have it. Huge thank you, DJ, for stopping by again spending the time talking to us and for sharing all the stories big 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 thank you to CT Now as always your number one place to get DJ Shorts gear Organic Gardening Solutions your number one place to grow that top shelf DJ Short gear and then finally 420 Australia they'll probably have a DJ Short shirt come out at some point I don't know don't hold me to that big thank you to the Patreon sponsors hit it up what to say other than that check it out I'm not that big on trying to sell it but you should check it out thanks for hanging out gang see you